And now for something completely different. This is the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Let's do it. Welcome to the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. With you till 3 on this Tuesday with plenty to get to over the next few hours. Coming up, we're a week away from the Major League Baseball trade deadline. And why I think a lot of people in Major League Baseball are looking at things all wrong. Plus... We'll talk about the quarterbacks ranked in different tiers by a bunch of executives in the NFL. We'll break down that ranking. Which guys will need to make the biggest jump over the next 12 months? I'll give you my boldest, I guess we can call them, opinions about the SEC this year. The big swing games in college football this season. Plus, training camps are off and running for everybody in the NFL today. We'll look at some of the bigger storylines for training camp this time of the year. And, of course, we're going to have to talk about Kyler Murray's contract stipulation and his independent study with the Arizona Cardinals. We'll talk some golf an hour from now with Jeremy Schilling and a whole lot more over the next few hours. You can join the conversation throughout the afternoon, 843-721-9500 to give us a call. You can always text the show, 843-608-1734. Get to us on Twitter at Morrow Middays, on Facebook at ESPN Charleston, via email studio at KirkmanBroadcasting.com, or online at CharlestonSportsRadio.com. Head over there and click on our show page where you can leave a comment for the show. You can find the latest versions of the show podcasted right there, or you can even take the Morrow Midday show with you wherever you go. Just simply stream us online at CharlestonSportsRadio.com. We're there till 3 on this Tuesday. We'll get to our top 10 list later on. Trent's on the steel wheels. Trent, what's going on? How are you? Luke, I'm doing phenomenal on this Tuesday. I mean, it's a great weather day, of course. A little hot outside here in the low country, no doubt about it. But I tell you what, I'm more fired up than ever after seeing Aaron Rodgers look like <laughs> Nick Cage going into training camp. He's winning his fifth MVP. We'll see you in Glendale, folks. I'm fired up, Luke Morrow. Training camps are happening. Are you kidding me? Football is in the air. It's glad to, glad to be with you here, sir. You know what? I'm obviously a Vikings fan. I guess that would make me a non-Aaron Rodgers guy. I saw that this morning. I liked it. Yeah. I appreciated it. He looks a lot like that character of uh, Nicolas Cage from um, uh, Con Air. Yeah, no doubt. It's a good look, I got to say. Shows up in case you haven't seen it, right? He's got, Rodgers already has the long hair. He's got it combed back. Shows up in just the uh, white undershirt. I never know how to call that on the radio. There's certain terms that I don't <laughs> think are appropriate for the, the use on radio. But you know what I'm talking about, the white tank top undershirt he even has it tucked into the jeans comes in with the bag it it was it was i can't root for aaron Rodgers, but i saw that video this morning i thought you know what 
today at least, I kind of like this guy. Yeah, I mean, one, he looks jacked, and two, yeah, put the bunny does. back in the box. That's like right. that's that's the fifth MVP, the bunny in the box. Thank you. See, now I get the connection. You 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 love Con Air. <laughs> you reference Nicolas Cage and that that line from that movie. Now Aaron Rodgers is dressing up like Nicolas Cage from Con Air. It's all coming together now. Stars are aligning. That's right. Love that movie, Con Air. Now I've talked about it on the show previously because I did watch it recently, and I don't know if it holds up that well twenty five years later. But growing up, I was on TV all the time. Always loved watching Con Air. Great cast. Probably Nick Cage's best work. Oh, yeah. Without all a right. doubt. Without a doubt. Or the National Treasures. Oh, uh, that's you, true. You know, you I gotta, do appreciate those. Yeah, no doubt. No, him, Stiller, you know, those are just the top guys. Yeah, come on. <laughs> what are we doing here? I always loved Gone in 60 Seconds as well. Uh, there's a, You know what? There's a couple movies. 20 years ago, Nick Cage wasn't bad. I watched his new movie. It was one of the worst things I've ever seen. It was awful. When he plays himself, terrible movie. Uh, don't watch that. But... Rogers dressing up as his character from Con Air, pretty good. I'll give Rogers credit today for that look showing up to training camp. We'll talk about NFL training camps as they're off and rolling. Preseason football begins a week from Thursday. We're nine days away from the Hall of Fame game. College football camps are kicking off this week. Football's right around the corner. But with that, let me start with this, with Major League Baseball. Because I say this all the time, and I don't always listen to my own advice. We can spend our whole lifetime wishing to speed things up. And then you'll look back one day and realize how quickly a year has gone, a few years, your life, your kid's childhood, whatever it is. Appreciate the time that you're in. I love the summer. I love for me personally, I have more downtime in the summer because of my schedule. I appreciate the slower times. I love baseball. So while we're all looking forward to football, myself included, and I can't wait to get football back in the meantime, let's enjoy these next few weeks where it is still a little bit slower. You're trying to temper your anticipation for kickoff. And enjoy Major League Baseball if you're a baseball fan. Enjoy the great weather, the time with the family, going to the beach, whatever it may be. Football will be here soon enough, and time goes by so fast. But in regards to Major League Baseball, the trade deadline's a week from today, and we continue to wait and see what sort of big moves we may get. And the big name, of course, is Juan Soto, to see what could happen with him if he is, in fact, moved. What will the Braves do? What will the Mets do? What about the Phillies? Other teams, the Dodgers? Well, the Padres, the Brewers, all these teams in the running that could impact or affect the Braves, what moves will they make over the next week? Now, I referenced this a little bit yesterday. I happened to watch this. We were just talking about movies. I watched Moneyball again over the weekend. It was on TV. And much like Con Air back in the day, there are certain movies that when they're on TV, they are a uh, channel stopper. I will stop flipping through channels and uh, fall down a rabbit hole. Next thing I know, right, it's an hour and a half later, I'm still watching the movie. Moneyball is one of those. It reels me in. And there's a line in Moneyball by Jonah Hill's character, which kind of sets off the whole thing of the Oakland A's and Moneyball, which in real life isn't all that accurate. But in the movie, it's a great scene. And Jonah Hill's talking to Brad Pitt's character, Billy Bean, and tells him how everybody in Major League Baseball are looking at it the wrong way. They're looking at the wrong things. They're looking at guys and their valuations and their star power and having to replace that. And the example he used in the movie, which took place in 2002, was Johnny Damon who left the Oakland A's at the time, signed a $7.5 million contract per year, $7.5 million, which was pretty big 20 years ago. And so the idea of those in baseball was, boy, we've got to get a star to replace Johnny Damon. We've got to get somebody who's you know, worth $7.5 million on that same level. And as Jonah Hill explained to Brad Pitt in the movie, what you really need is to find somebody not to replace that value or that money, what you think he's worth, but instead somebody who can replace the on-base percentage. How often does he get on base? That's what we have to replace. Not the amount of all-star games or the star power of the brands or the amount of money he can command on the open market. Just simply, he gets on base 30% of the time. All right, let's find somebody who's going to do the same. 
and we won't really miss him. So I say that because now fast forward 20 years. What are we all looking at when it comes to Major League Baseball? Mostly home runs. That's the main thing. You know, Juan Soto's a great player. If I was running a team and I had the pieces, I would certainly I would want him on my team. But it is interesting that Soto, this season, is batting in the 240s. You look at a lot of these guys, and the averages are down for most of these players. If you go and you look at the um, highest-paid players in Major League Baseball this year, very few of them are actually batting over 250. Manny Machado's having a good year. He's one of the highest-paid position players. He's batting in the 280s. Right, Mike Trout was 270, not terrible. There's a few guys over 250. The majority of the 20 highest-paid hitters, in fact, almost all of them, are betting below 250. And I know baseball has changed, but I guess I'm old school. There are still certain stats that I look at that carry a lot of weight. In football, I think the most telling statistic for a quarterback is yards per attempt. It lets you know how efficient or how effective a quarterback is. They may have a ton of passing yards, but they also have a ton of attempts. They also may have a ton of interceptions along the way. Yards per attempt tells you how many yards they're gaining in terms of how many times they put the ball in the air. And the more yards you get on the fewer attempts, the more efficient and really the more effective you are. If you have 300 passing yards on 60 pass attempts, that's obviously far less impressive than somebody doing it on 40 pass attempts. You get the idea. Same idea with running backs. You can focus, right, back in the day, 1,000 yards used to be the big thing. Now we play 17 games. You only need to average about 50 yards a game. You're going over 1,000. Not a big deal anymore. To me, the most telling stat is still yards per carry. Again, to see how efficient and effective you are. For a wide receiver, I always like to look at the, um, uh, per, the, the catch percentage, they call it. How many targets are you getting, and how many of those are actually leading to catches? You may have 60 catches, but are they throwing it to you 100 times? I want to see who's the most efficient wide receiver or running back or quarterback. And so to bring it back to baseball, that's kind of the idea with on-base percentage. Why just focus on batting average if they're just getting on base? It's kind of a way to see who's the most efficient. Yeah, he's only batting 250, but he's getting on base 35% of the time through walks or getting hit by a pitch. It can be a more telling statistic. But the problem for me is when you focus so much on on-base percentage, all of those are simply one base. right? The difference between batting average and on-base percentage is typically just a walk. You're getting one base. Whereas batting average, if a guy's th- hitting 300, those aren't all going to be singles. There's a chance it could be a double. There's a chance it could be a triple, a home run. And we know the old cliche that when you put the ball in play, good things happen. So I understand the difference between batting average and on-base percentage, where a guy could be hitting 250, but if he's getting on base, almost 40% of the time his on-base percentage is in the high 300s, that can be more valuable. But at the same time, if those are all just walks, if you're just getting one base at a time, it's equivalent to a single. And a single is the worst thing that could happen in terms of a hit. So if a guy has a high batting average, you assume, well, he's getting at least singles, and sometimes he's getting doubles, triples, homers, uh, driving somebody in, even just putting the ball in play and moving a runner over. To me, that's still valuable. So I go on this long soliloquy because I think in Major League Baseball, we're still looking at the wrong things, whether it's ignoring batting average, whether it's focusing on home runs. Home runs is the big thing. If you go back and you look at all the big contracts being handed out, it's a bunch of guys that have low batting averages but hit a lot of home runs. They drive in runs that way. Here's the issue. I went back over just, just, just the past decade. I don't want to spend too much time on it. But I look back at the last 10 World Series. If you take the 20 teams that participated in the last 10 World Series in Major League Baseball, theoretically the 20 best teams over that time, the average rank in the league in home runs was 13th. The average team to participate in the World Series hit the 13th most homers in the league out of 30 teams. 
essentially middle of the road. Meanwhile, when you take the last 10 World Series winners, they all had a better batting average than league average. Whatever the league average was that year for hitting, the last 10 World Series champs, and if we kept going back further, I think this trend would continue. It didn't just start in the past decade. But each of the last 10 World Series champs were all better hitting teams than your average team in baseball in terms of batting average. Not home runs per se, not doubles, not even strikeouts, walks, on-base percentage, but all better hitting teams than your average team. You need to be above average still in hitting to have success in baseball. And if you go back and you look, over the past decade, the Dodgers won the World Series when leading the league in homers. They're the only team to do it the last 10 years. Meanwhile, the Giants also won a World Series when they were last in home runs. But we've had three World Series champions who led the league in batting average. We had two more who finished second in the league in batting average. So half of the last 10 World Series champions were top two in the league in batting average. Five out of ten. Only one was top two in homers. You tell me what's more indicative of success. What's more valuable? Additionally, not quite as strong, but six of the last ten World Series winners also had fewer strikeouts than league average. Almost 50-50, so not a telling statistic. The Braves were one of the outliers, where the Braves were actually towards the top of the league in strikeouts when they won the World Series last year. But more than half of the World Series champs the last year were better than average in putting the ball in play, not striking out. And all of the World Series winners the past decade were better than average in hitting the baseball, in getting hits. Not necessarily home runs. They weren't always top 10 in homers, but they were usually top 10 in batting average. I've given you my anecdotal examples before. I'm a Red Sox fan. I could tell you in 2018 when they won the World Series, not only did they lead the league in hitting, but they led the league in hitting with two outs, two strikes as well. They were very clutch. Those are the things that get it done in October. So when we look at the trade deadline and we talk about players' value and you see the big contracts handed out, usually it's a bunch of guys hitting 240 and clobbering 35 homers. I still don't think that's the most valuable thing. I still think we're looking at baseball the wrong way. My grandfather used to say when you would read the newspaper, turn it upside down before you read it, right? Because everything is backwards or upside down in the media. And it's somewhat similar in baseball. You know, take the telescope and turn it around. Look through the other side. We think home runs are the most valuable thing. The data suggests, well, home runs, when it comes to winning World Series, don't really have an impact. But it's actually the teams that hit the ball the best, that have the highest batting average, that can still put the ball in play, that have good hitters, clutch hitters, good two-strike hitters that can shorten up. That's still most important. Now, this isn't some sort of rant on Juan Soto. The guy has hit well prior to this year. But I do think it's just another example of modern-day baseball where you'll sell the farm over a guy batting 240 because that's what's expected today. If you look at some of the highest-paid players in baseball, the majority of them are batting under 250. That's the new norm. But I call me old school, call me antiquated, say that I can't uh, update my standards. I think it's still important to be able to put the ball in play, have a good batting average, make contact. And I think when you go back and you look at the World Series champions, it shows the same thing. This past offseason, 12 different free agents in Major League Baseball signed contracts north of $100 million. You know how many 12 participated in the All-Star game last week? Zero. The 12 highest paid guys this offseason who combined to make almost $2 billion combined for zero All-Star games. I think Major League Baseball teams are investing their money in the wrong areas. That's not to say I'm the smartest man in the room and I'm smarter than all 30 GMs in Major League Baseball, but there's this infatuation which is simply hitting home runs, don't worry about strikeouts, don't put the ball in play. I can keep pulling out data that suggests you got it backwards. You're wrong. Maybe in the regular season, maybe to get through 162 games, that's the easiest path. Just simply hit homers, don't worry about it. Strike out a bunch, right? go for the big swing. 
But when you get to the playoffs, what wins still? Just putting the ball in play, playing good baseball, good defense, clutch two-strike hitting, putting guys on base, and not just waiting for the big home run. The classic example we can always point to is the Yankees. 13 years without a World Series, despite leading the league in homers, really the majority of those years. It doesn't pay off in October. So with the trade deadline a week away and the focus on a lot of certain guys, it's just another reminder to me of Major League Baseball, I think, looking at everything backwards. Everyone's obsessed with homers. I think you still win with good hitting, with batting average, still in 2022. Call me old school. Call me crazy. I still appreciate the guy that can bat 290 and put the ball in play, you know, three out of ten at-bats instead of just waiting for the home run. Instead of Joey Gallo batting 150 but starting every night because every once in a while he'll hit a homer. I don't think that's as valuable. With the trade deadline a week away, the Braves are now two games behind the Mets. This race could be the most interesting in baseball the second half of the season, and here's why. Because with Major League Baseball's new playoff structure, the top two teams in the AL and the NL get the bye, and the other four teams have to face one another. Um, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, the other four teams will face each other. It didn't sound right when I said it, but it is correct. And then you take those two winners and the two teams that get a bye, and you're down to four teams in the AL and the NL. So the top two teams get a bye now in the AL and the NL. When you look at the National League, the Dodgers are clear on their way to getting a bye. Who will get the second bye? As of right now, it looks like the winner of the National League East. The Mets, in first place in the National League East, have a a six-and-a-half game lead over the Brewers, first place in the Central, for that second bye. The Braves are now two games behind the Mets. So unless both teams really tank and the Brewers take off, most likely that second bye will be the winner of the NL East. Now, what happens if the Braves don't win the division and say they lose to the Mets by one game and they have the third-best record in the NL? Well, they'll become one of the wild-card teams. The Brewers will be the three-seed, and the best the Braves could do would be a four-seed, which would then force them to take on the five-seed. And I know I'm throwing a lot of numbers at you, but the point being, it'd give them the toughest first-round matchup possible. And as of right now, that'd be the Padres, right, who are also have a better record than the Brewers in the NL Central. You'd be facing the fourth-best team in the NL when you have the third-best record. It'd be a tough matchup for the Braves in that first round. It'd be a tough matchup for the Mets if they were the wild card. So the Subway Series begins tonight for the Mets. The Braves continue to play the Phillies. The Braves are only two games back. It's going to be a very interesting final two months of this baseball season, specifically in the National League East, because the winner of that division will get a first-round bye. The loser will probably get the toughest matchup in the first round. It's not really fair, but it's how the playoffs are now set up with their seeding for Major League Baseball. And when Rob Manfred went to the six teams and the extra wild cards, this is exactly what he had in mind, the race in the NL East. It's really the only one we have that will bring that much to the table, that will have that much on the line. The winner will be the two-seed and get a bye. The loser will be a four-seed and get the toughest matchup in the first round. It's what's going to make this race very intriguing as we head towards the final 60 games of the season these next two months. Braves right now two games behind the Mets. We'll see what either team does over the next week with the trade deadline coming up a week from today. When we come back, Mike Sando released his uh, list on The Athletic where he talks to all sorts of different people in the NFL, and they put all the quarterbacks in different tiers. It's always an interesting article. We talk about it every year. Mike's been on the show to talk about it. I'll give you my thoughts on the breakdown when we come back, including which quarterbacks will need to make the most progress in the next 12 months. When we get to this list next year, which quarterbacks will need to show the most movement between now and then? We'll get to that next. It's the Mar Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. 
Coming up, takeaways from Mike Sando on the Athletics quarterback tier article. And which of these quarterbacks need to make the most progress in the next 12 months? We'll get to that on the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow on ESPN Radio. Open the show talking about Major League Baseball, how I still think people are looking at things the wrong way, and how interesting the next two months will be for the Atlanta Braves and the New York Mets to compete for that second bye in the NL playoffs. But speaking of the Braves, did you see Paul Bird? On the broadcast, wearing the tightest shirt you could ever wear. I don't know how that's comfortable. And I like Paul. Uh, and he even uh, he's put out like an apology and said it, it was hard to broadcast wearing a straight jacket. The shirt, it was a white button-down shirt. It is so tight, it looks like the buttons are going to pop. It is so tight that you can see skin. His chest, he's not wearing an undershirt uh, in between each button, where the shirt is like literally being pulled apart. You can see his stomach all the way down the center of his shirt. I don't know how, A, somebody ever thinks that's a good idea to wear a shirt that tight. B, even gets into that shirt. And then, again, C, I guess I go back to A, is wearing that shirt, sitting there thinking like, yeah, this looks good. The shirt is literally, it's like popping at the seams. The buttons are about to explode. It's distracting. They'd show them on camera. It's like, my God, what is Paul? He looks like he just got struck by some gamma rays. What is he wearing? So he's had to, I don't know if I'd say apologize, but he even acknowledged it was a, a bad fashion choice. A collared shirt that was so tight it was uh, bursting at the buttons. If you're ever wearing a shirt and it's being spread so thin that your skin is being revealed, that kind of defeats the purpose of the shirt. You probably shouldn't wear a shirt that small or that tight. Mike Sando does a great article every year on The Athletic where he talks to 50 NFL coaches and executives, and they all vote on the top quarterbacks, and then based off of those votes, Mike Sando will put the quarterbacks into tiers. And he's done this now for at least five years, so he has all of the data to compare to years past to see if a quarterback's moving up, moving down. Uh, this always inclu- includes some of the uh, anonymous quotes of what certain voters said about certain quarterbacks. If you're an athletic subscriber, you can go read it today. It's always a fun article this time of year. It gets you ready for football season. I know lists, long lists, just running down a list doesn't always work great on the radio. It's more of a visual. If you're not an athletic subscriber, you can thank me later. But when you look at this article from Mike Sando, if we just quickly were to go through it, the top tier of quarterbacks includes Rodgers, Mahomes, Brady, Josh Allen, Justin Herbert, Joe Burrow. Those are your top six quarterbacks in the top tier. Tier number two includes the following quarterbacks. Matt Stafford, Russell Wilson, Deshaun Watson, Lamar Jackson, Dak Prescott, Derek Carr, Kyler Murray. We'll get to him later on. Matt Ryan, and that's tier two. Then we get to Tier 3, and at this point, you're up to quarterback number 15, essentially almost the second half of starting quarterbacks. Tier 3 includes Kirk Cousins, Jimmy Garoppolo, Ryan Tannehill, Mac Jones, Baker Mayfield, Jalen Hurts, Carson Wentz, Jared Goff, and Trevor Lawrence, Jameis Winston as well. That's Tier 3. Then we get to Tier 4, a Tier 4 quarterback is listed as an unproven player or a veteran who would not start the whole season. In Tier 4, you have Justin Fields, 
Tua, Davis Mills, Zach Wilson, Trey Lance, Daniel Jones, Marcus Mariota, Sam Darnold, Mitch Trubisky, Drew Locke. And then we get to Tier 5, where Tier 5 is listed. The title is a Tier 5 quarterback is best suited as a backup. We could just call it the Geno Smith category. He's the only quarterback. He gets his own tier. Tier 5 is just simply Geno Smith, who is ranked as the 35th best quarterback in the NFL this year. He got a tier to himself. Usually that'd be pretty good, except when it's the bottom tier. If you have Tier 1 all to yourself, then absolutely. right? You feel good. Like, yeah, I'm all by myself. I'm, a, I'm on a level alone. Nobody can compare to me. But when you're in the bottom tier by yourself, that's crushing. Geno Smith opens up this article and sees, wow, nobody is as bad as me. I'm the worst quarterback in the league. You couldn't put anybody else in the category with me? I'm all by myself? The same guy who we were talking about Madden rankings last week. Madden apparently ranked Geno Smith as a 60. He's only the third best quarterback on the Seahawks roster in Madden. He may be the starter this year. Madden thinks he's the third best quarterback. He's a 60. Might as well keep him out of the video game. So poor Geno Smith, uh, not getting much love this offseason. By the way, the quarterback right above him is Drew Locke. So the two worst quarterbacks are the Seahawks' two quarterbacks. And that's going to be a fun year for 70-year-old Pete Carroll. Takeaways from this list. I don't have any huge disagreements. I was just talking about it off air with Trent. Now, I think Justin Herbert, I like Justin Herbert. I think he's really good. I think he's one of the better quarterbacks in the league. Maybe I'm contradicting myself. I couldn't put him in Tier 1 just yet. I could not put him on the same level as Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers and Patrick Mahomes. Josh Allen's also in Tier 1. He did his part. His defense let him down to get to a Super Bowl uh, or close to it. And um, Joe Burrow's in Tier 1, and he just led the Bengals to the Super Bowl in Year 2. I need, if I'm going to put you on the same level as Rodgers, Mahomes, and Brady, not only do I need the ability and the talent, which Justin Herbert possesses, but I also need the winning. Now, we know football is the ultimate team sport. Maybe it's unfair to judge Justin Herbert based off of the team. He's had a different coaching staff each of his first two years, but he has a losing record as a starter, hasn't made it, made it to the playoffs yet. And sure, it's only been two years, but again, Joe Burrow went to a worse team and got them to a Super Bowl already. So if I'm going to put you in Tier 1, he may be a Tier 1 talent, but in order for me already to say, oh, yeah, top five quarterback in the league, I got to show that you're that difference maker, that you're going to lead the team to the playoffs, even if there is a coaching change, even if there are some injuries, even if you don't have the best defense in the league. There's a lot of talent on that Chargers team. You couldn't beat the Raiders last year in Week 17 or Week 18, and the Raiders are being coached by an interim coach and had all sorts of issues last year, and they still beat you and had a better record than you. So I like Justin Herbert a lot. I don't want to sound like a slight on Herbert. Putting him in Tier 2 is not some sort of offense. That's still pretty darn good for a guy his age. But I don't think I could include him in Tier 1 already. I need to see the winning as well if I'm going to put you as one of the best quarterbacks in the league. Speaking of winning, Matt Stafford coming off the Super Bowls in Tier 2. I don't have a big issue. Russell Wilson, uh, you know, I know uh, people have soured on him in, in the last uh, maybe two years. I still like Russ. I've always been a big Russ supporter. Maybe I'd bump him up. We could debate about Lamar Jackson, who's ranked as the 10th best quarterback. I also think Tier 2 is a little too big. I don't know if I would put Kyler Murray and certainly would not include Matt Ryan in the same tier as Lamar Jackson and Russell Wilson and Matt Stafford. We have about 10 quarterbacks in Tier 2. That's too many. Uh, tier 2 should be much smaller. Bump Matt Ryan and probably even Dak and maybe Kyler and Derek Carr. Bump them to like a Tier 3. And as a Vikings fan, when I see Kirk Cousins is still ranked only 15th on this list, that's not a great feeling either. He's in Tier 3 as the 15th best quarterback in the league. 
And uh, as Mike Sando writes, if there's ever a Tier 3 Hall of Fame, Cousins would be the first one in. It's true. He's always stuck in that. You know, he's good enough to keep you from a high draft pick, not good enough to actually go, like, win a Super Bowl. He's good enough to, you know, get you over 500, not good enough to win a bunch of playoff games. But if we're looking at this list and seeing, okay, which one of these guys need to make the most progress over the next 12 months, when Mike Sando polls those in the NFL a year from now, and we get the same article, which quarterbacks do we need to see make the biggest climb? The first one on my list would probably be Kyler Murray. He isn't in tier, He's uh, in Tier 2, towards the back end of Tier 2. He's ranked as the 13th best quarterback. We're going to break down Kyler Murray's little independent study, but he was just given, what, the second biggest contract for quarterbacks in the NFL? So if you're going to get paid like a top-five quarterback, you're going to have to now perform like a top-five quarterback. And the more time we give it, the further he'll move away from being a top-paid quarterback. That's how, just how it works. But if you're going to give him all that money and that guaranteed money and that big-time commitment, you, you, the performance is going to have to match the pay scale. So for Kyler Murray to be almost a Tier 3 quarterback, a year from now, I'm going to need you, if not in the top tier, at the very top of Tier 2. Right? In the top 10, certainly. Like Matt Stafford, and without looking at the list, I know all this talk could be a little confusing to follow via the radio. But right now, Matt Stafford is the top quarterback in Tier 2. He's ranked as the seventh-best quarterback in the league. That's the minimum. That's where I need Kyler next year, if not in Tier 1 himself. Other quarterbacks, obviously all of the young guys need to prove themselves. They're all towards the bottom of the list. You have Justin Fields in Tier 4. You have Davis Mills. You have Zach Wilson. You have Trey Lance, all in Tier 4. Even Daniel Jones still is in Tier 4. Those are guys that, of course, need to prove themselves. They're all young guys with you know something on the line here. But I think most notably, Tua is also in Tier 4 as the 26th best quarterback. He really needs to bump himself up over the next 12 months. If he doesn't, he'll probably be without a starting job a year from now. He'd be in that Geno Smith category of a guy that shouldn't be a starting quarterback. For Tua, we've been talking about all offseason. We'll talk about it throughout the regular season. This is his time to try to prove himself this season. Jalen Hurts is in Tier 3, ranked as the 20th best quarterback. I would say that even for Jalen Hurts, who already jumped 10 spots from last year, can you try to jump another 10 this year? Get into Tier 2. Get towards the top 10 in the league. He's got a lot of talent around him. Made it to the playoffs last year as a first-time starter. One of the uh, offensive coaches called him in this article a poor man's Lamar Jackson. Right, can you try to meet that standard of Lamar? They brought you in A.J. Brown. He's another one. And then most notably, I would probably say, maybe outside of Tua, the guy that needs to make the biggest jump is also Trevor Lawrence. Trevor Lawrence is ranked as the 23rd best quarterback in the NFL. He's behind Jared Goff. He's behind Carson Wentz. He's behind Jalen Hurts. He's still behind Baker Mayfield and Mac Jones and Ryan Tannehill. These are the guys directly ahead of him. And he's at the very end of Tier 3, Trevor Lawrence's. Now, maybe he came into the league with unfair expectations, but he was the first overall pick. He was billed as a generational talent. I've been pumping up the tires of the Jaguars a little bit this offseason because I think the move to Doug Peterson is a big one for Trevor Lawrence and that team. So Trevor right now is in the back end of Tier 3 as the 23rd best quarterback in the league. It's going to be Year 2. They brought in a bunch of wide receivers for you. Travis Etienne's going to be healthy. You get Doug Peterson as your coach. I need to see a big jump from Trevor Lawrence. I need Trevor to cut that number essentially in half. Try to get into the top 12 a year from now. You're supposed to be the next Peyton Manning, the next Andrew Luck. People have compared you to John Elway. You were the number one pick. You're supposed to save the Jaguars. I know. Maybe it's unfair pressure we put on the young kid. But last year, he was lousy. He was bad. Statistically, he was a bottom three quarterback in the league. 
this year. I imagine his setup in Jacksonville will be a little bit better, a little bit easier for him to have success. He's going to have to have a lot of it. Right now he's ranked as the 23rd best quarterback, essentially bottom 10. It's not good enough, even after just one year. A year from now, I want to see more of a climb from Trevor Lawrence than any other quarterback. I want to see more improvements from him this year than anybody else. But you're looking at a Justin Fields who's in Tier 4. You're looking at a Tua in Tier 4. Jalen Hurts, who's in Tier 3. These are guys that this is a big year for them over the next 12 months to try to prove themselves and climb up on these lists. And Kyler Murray as well, the oldest of the quarterbacks I mentioned. But you get that big contract, you better start playing like it. Which takes me to this independent study clause in Kyler Murray's contract. We have to touch on that. Plus, which quarterback, we already kind of discussed this a little bit yesterday, but which quarterback would you want to start your team with? We'll get to that coming up as well. The more Midday Show, right here on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. Kyler Murray has a work-study program now with his new NFL team. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. We were just talking about Mike Sando's list on The Athletic of putting all the NFL quarterbacks in tiers based off of the polling that was done with NFL coaches and executives. And there are certain guys that I think need to really move up that list over the next 12 months. None probably bigger than Trevor Lawrence. Tua as well would be high up on my list. Those may be the top two guys. I'd also tell you Jalen Hurts could use some progress. Uh, all the young players, in fact, Justin Fields, even Daniel Jones is still playing for his job. He's towards the bottom of the list. Trey Lance, if he gets an opportunity this year. All those young quarterbacks that just came in the league. And then, I didn't mention him last segment, but I was thinking about it. You know, maybe Dak Prescott as well. He's outside of the top ten. He's a Cowboys quarterback. He's getting paid a lot of money. We always hear about Dak. There's a lot of pressure on him. He's very divisive, some people believe. He's a top-end quarterback. Others think he is overrated. Mike McCarthy's on the hot seat. Right For Dak Prescott, he too could really elevate his name on this list over the next 12 months. And outside of Dak, the oldest quarterback, I would say, is still Kyler Murray with the most to prove based off of this ranking, and that's in large part because of the big contract he signed. If he didn't sign this contract, I probably wouldn't have the same opinion. But he signed a $231 million contract with more than half of it guaranteed. It's the second biggest. And we got this little tidbit yesterday afternoon from Ian Rappaport who tweeted out a screenshot of a portion of the contract which details the quote-unquote independent study between the Arizona Cardinals and Kyler Murray for all contract years. And it requires Kyler Murray to partake in four hours of independent study per game week, which is essentially watching film, and getting ready for the upcoming game and learning your opponents. Four hours a week. So do the math. If we're just doing this Monday through Friday, even though you know the game's Sunday, you still got the walkthroughs on Saturday and everything, but that's okay. You take five days, four hours. What would that be? 12, is that, what, 48 minutes a day? Something like that? Can you spend 45 minutes a day getting ready for the upcoming game? That's what they're requiring from Kyler Murray. And if you look at the details of the independent study. 
right? You can't use your phone. No movies. Like, it's just simply four hours watching film, getting ready, looking at the screen. You can't be distracted. You can't be uh, surfing the web while you're doing so. Can't be using your phone. Can't be playing video games. Somewhat humorous to me that the same quarterback you give $231 million to is the same guy that you can't trust to do his film work. Doesn't seem like a great start. You know, in relationships, trust is always the most important thing. Doesn't seem like the Cardinals can trust Kyler Murray or haven't been trusting him to do his work. This is like Jamarcus Russell. Where Jamarcus Russell, the Raiders used to give him blank VHS or DVDs to take home. He'd come back in the next day. They'd ask him made-up questions about the film he supposedly watched, and he would answer them. Knowing that, yeah, he's not doing his film study. Back in the day, um, I remember I had uh, somebody I went to school with who always had the theory, like, I don't think our teacher actually reads our papers very much. And he used to put, in the middle of his paper, he used to put just random things about the teacher had a mustache. And let's just say his name was Jones. I remember one paper in particular, and he showed me, so I'm not just making this up or he wasn't lying about it. In the middle of, an, in the middle of a paragraph for his paper, he wrote, like, Mr. Jones' uh, mustache uh, tickles his wife when they make out. And the teacher didn't acknowledge it. He wasn't reading the papers. Similar here. Like Jamarcus Russell, nah, not watching the game film. Kyler Murray, apparently uh, not paying attention. If you're going to devote $231 million to a quarterback, you've got to trust that he is all in. He is invested. He's working hard. Now, Kyler Murray had said in the past this quote, and it was making the rounds because he said, I think I was blessed with cognitive skills to just go out there and just see it before it happens. I'm not one of those guys that's going to sit there and kill myself watching film. I don't sit there for 24 hours and break down this team and that, and I don't watch every game because in my head I see so much. I mean, my goodness, speaking of that head, he could see so much because he's got such a big head. What a what an arrogant quote that is. And look, that's fine. That's all good and well. He's regarded as maybe the best high school quarterback in Texas history. Was great at Oklahoma. But in the NFL right now, three years in, you have a losing record with the Cardinals, no playoff wins, has never had a 30-touchdown uh, uh, season. Teams fade in the second half. Hey, there's still a lot of questions for Kyler. I've been saying for the last few months I wouldn't pay him this huge contract. I don't think he's proven it yet. And now you tell me? That you don't trust him to sit down and watch film of his opponent? I definitely would not be paying him that contract. He's got bad body language, doesn't seem to be a good leader, took himself out of a playoff game, doesn't want to watch film, has threatened, you know, the idea of like, oh, I'll just go play baseball. When Buda Baker got injured last year, he was one of the few guys, Kyler was, that did not get off the bench to go out and see his teammate. I'm not paying this guy 200 Now you're telling me that you have to force him to sit down and just just four hours? That's all you can get out of him? Can you at least give us four hours of watching film? Doesn't sound great. You know, in this industry, to bring it to my backyard, they always say that the broadcasts are the fun part. You get paid for the prep work leading up to it. And maybe some guys are more talented than others that they don't need to prepare as much as somebody else. You've been doing it long enough, whatever. I would say, however, for Kyler, it's only been three years. Again, losing record, no playoff wins. If you're telling me Tom Brady's not watching a ton of film anymore, yeah, I get it. He's won. He's been successful. He has seen just about everything thrown at him. He's been in the league for 25 years. When you're talking about a young guy that still has a lot to prove and say, like, eh, he doesn't watch film. I don't know if that comes off the same way. But I think a quarterback is somewhat similar. I mean, right? Nobody likes practice. The games are fun. So the games are the fun part. What you're getting paid for is the stuff you do 
the rest of the time. Taking care of your body in the offseason. Making sure you show up to training camp or ready for week one in good shape. Physically, mentally, you know the playbook, you're ready to go. As a broadcaster, that's the old cliche. You don't get paid for the broadcast. That's the fun stuff. That's the reward. What you get paid for is everything in between to get ready for said broadcast. And you could use that line for most industries. Like what you get paid for is the not the, the funnest part of the job. It's for all the preparation that goes in leading up to it. All that other stuff. And for Kyler Murray, like this is what you're getting paid for. You gotta watch film during the week. You gotta know your opponent. Learn the plays, learn the game plan. Here was um Ryan Clark, who of course played a long time in the NFL, talking about this this morning on Get Up, this idea of this independent study forcing Kyler Murray to watch game film for four hours a week without any distractions. Here were Ryan Clark's thoughts. And why, oh why, oh why would you ever have to ask the quarterback of a football team to do four hours? of independent study a week? Listen, I I played football back when you had a DVD and I had the big fat white Mac laptop and I would just put the DVD in and do, you could do four, you're supposed to do four hours a day, four hours a night. This is, and God bless his soul, Jamarcus was on our show. Is this the Jamarcus Russell rule? That now we have to mandate this and you mandate this to somebody you gave $160 million guaranteed? Right, and so now when I think back to early on in the offseason and I think to some of the, the, the headbutting we had and, and some of the putting out the narratives or the, the anonymous things we heard out of Arizona, those things were true. That Kyler Murray didn't work the way that they wanted. That Kyler, and he's big into gaming. Maybe they want to get him off the game sometimes, but this is not a good sign to me. And the other part that it does for me is now in the locker room, which a lot of times you know these things, Right. When, when something goes wrong and, and Kyler Murray doesn't make a play or they don't pick up a blitz because he doesn't slide the line the right way. If I'm sitting on the bench and I'm the safety who does a ton of study every week, that's the first thing I think. Yes. He probably didn't get his four hours in. Yeah. Now I'm, asked, I'm in the meeting. I'm asking Cliff, Cliff, can we see the video of Kyler doing his four <laughs> hours of mandated study? Because I knew that blitz was coming. And so this is, to me, this is not a good thing. It's not. And for it to now, because you put it in there and you sign it, it's now public. Yeah. yeah. And so every week we get up here, it's going to be like, I wonder, you know, if Kyler studied this week because you know that's in his contract. I don't like it. Ryan Clark this morning. I do agree with him. And he makes a good point there at the end where this just gives everybody ammunition. If Kyler Murray has a three-interception game, if the team's not winning, if he doesn't play well, you know even if it's in joking fashion, that's what the narrative's going to be when you turn on the TV or the radio the next day. Like, oh, he must have not been doing his independent study. He wasn't watching his film. It's just setting up for your quarterback to be mocked all season if he doesn't play great. But there's no winner in this. This obviously came from the team. Kyler Murray, his agent, they wouldn't want this out there. The Cardinals put this out there. Why? I don't really know. Because you just gave Kyler a big contract, and I think it looks every, it makes everybody look bad in all this. It makes your quarterback look bad, which I guess was the intention, because he's not doing his film work. Maybe this is supposed to bring some public attention and pressure to force Kyler to start studying more. I don't know. But it also makes the Cardinals look bad, because it's like, why did you just give him this huge contract for a guy that you don't trust to study film, that you have to force to watch four hours of film a week? I mean, it's embarrassing for everybody involved. It's like when you were a kid being told to do your homework. All Nobody wants to do their homework. And your parents would force you uh, and ground you if you didn't. Although I guess in this case, the example would be like uh, they'd, they'd pay you for just doing your homework. Call it chores. When you would do your chores, you'd get an allowance if you were lucky enough growing up. That's Kyler Murray. This is his chore. Every week, you got to do four hours of film study 
and then we'll pay you. Because if he doesn't do it, he's in breach of the contract, and he's in jeopardy of losing the guaranteed money in the deal. So you better do your four hours each week of uninterrupted film study, a quote-unquote independent study. More on this coming up, because I've actually done independent studies in my past, and uh, they're all pretty much a joke. And I'll tell you my stories of that. When we come back, more bad news, more tough news for Justin Ross. We'll get to that next. The more Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. Grabbing up hour one on the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow on ESPN Radio. We'll get back to Kyler Murray in this ridiculous independent study clause that everyone was made aware of yesterday and everyone will be talking about today. Unfortunately, though, some um, tough news for Justin Ross out of Chiefs camp. If you Google his name, I see this article from Arrowhead Addict, which is a Chiefs, um, you know, like a Chiefs fan blog, I suppose. And uh, it says the headline is, Ross has wide open path to productivity with Chiefs. We talked at the time, you know, he was undrafted, signed with the Chiefs. I said that would be a a perfect fit for him to be in Kansas City where they could really, uh, if anybody, could try to get the most out of him after some of the injury concerns he had at Clemson and the potential he flashed when healthy, it'd probably be Kansas City. But we just got news within the last 24 hours that he's going to be out for this season after having another foot surgery. Not great. And as I always say, right, guys don't get healthier as they get older. And I don't have my list in front of me, but I remember at the draft a few years ago, I think it was actually in regards to Debo Samuel, I ran through a long list of guys who were injured in college and then had injury concerns throughout the NFL. And a lot of times these injuries, right, if you ever had knee problems, you have knee problems the rest of your life. You turn an ankle one time, even just turning your ankle. Now you got to wear like an ankle brace whenever you go play sports. You know, you got a little bit of a sensitive ankle now. You could t- you're prone to turning it again. You have back problems. Usually back problems don't go away, unfortunately. You're going to have back issues, maybe not as severe, but you're going to have back issues the rest of your life. And for Justin Ross, after dealing with some injuries at Clemson, he's having some more problems now. In fact, this surgery is to correct a previous surgery, so that's not great. His foot still hasn't essentially, I guess, properly healed, or things just uh, got a little bit worse over time. So Ross will be out this year. We'll see what 2023 brings for him. But unfortunately, more injury issues for Justin Ross. Hour two coming up next. This is the Morrow Midday Show. But wait, there's more. On ESPN Radio. Guess 
second hour of the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. If you ever miss anything with the show, you can always catch it on demand. Just search ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcasts. And the podcasts are always available online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Just click on our show page. Find the show podcasted there. While there, you can always leave a comment for the show, charlestonsportsradio.com. Click on our show page. Get to us on Twitter at Morrow Middays. Text the show, 843-608-1734. Or you can always join the conversation on the phones as well, 843-721-9500. Speaking of the phones, that's where we head. Because usually every Wednesday at 1 p.m., our resident golf expert, Jeremy Schilling, joins us. But he joins us today on a Tuesday. You can find him on Twitter at Jay Schill. He writes for PJ Magazine, joins us every week. And he's with us now. Jeremy, good afternoon. How are you? Uh, I, I am well, Luke. I'm, I'm finding out some things um, that, that may be of interest. You're saying that if news breaks when I'm not on my uh, – uh, when it's not during my normal segment, I can text the show to give that information? That's true, yeah. You can text the show what, your wildest thoughts, whatever you wish. Uh, that's, that's lovely because, as you know – we're going to get NFL training camp news here soon, and that means that I'll be weeping, and it'll be August. Yes. It'll start early for you this year, so you can send all your uh, Jets uh, thoughts and um, uh, sadness on the text line even before the season begins, and uh, we'll get plenty of it this year, I'm sure. Um, it is an exciting time with training camps beginning throughout the NFL. We'll uh, circle back to the NFL coming up, but we always talk golf every week with Jeremy. On Twitter at Jay Shell, writes for PGA Magazine. Let's talk about the uh, the 3M this past week with Tony Finau pulling off his third PGA Tour victory. What stood out about the about that to you from the weekend? I want to give a shout out first of all to the 275,000 TV only viewers that joined us for the that joined the CBS produced they aired on Golf Channel and some streaming platforms. Rain delayed conclusion to uh, rain con- rain delayed conclusion to the, the third round. You know, we always look at what the future of sports betting is, and and, and TV ratings can be explained a hundred different ways. But if you are looking for possibly the future of sports betting and golf betting specifically, two hundred seventy five k from six thirty to nine fifty five basically on a on a Saturday night. In uh, the summer, and Golf Channel gets 275k. I know it's not a big number. The final round got 2.1 million. The CBS Rain uh, telecast got 1.1 million. It peaked at 3 million when Tony Finau won. But just a shout out to you, 275,000 people uh, out there like me who think and live in weird ways. Yeah, absolutely, pretty good numbers. But that's that's. That's the first thing I want to say. The second thing that I want to say is that Tony Finau, when you have windy conditions, the best always rise up. And the best usually is the most experienced. It may not be the most complete player, but it's going to be the guy who's most experienced. And what we saw Saturday night is that nothing for Tony Finau would fall putting-wise. He lost two strokes, uh, two and a half strokes to the field putting-wise on Saturday, and especially Saturday night. Final round makes the birdies uh, early, 
and then just runs it right after the turn, birding 11, 14, 15, 16. And that's the Tony Finau. When, when, when Scott Piercy lost the tournament on 14 and 15, um, through some unfortunate luck and also some unfortunate misses, Tony Finau ran the tables in that time. And that's where a 67 rises up against the final round, 76, five over, where Scott Piercy, not only, you know, every, every, everyone knows that he tripled 14 after getting in, uh, uh, getting into a bunker with a plug live, hits it out from there. Um, and, and then, and then his shot from there, um, goes into the water and then bogeys 15, but he had also bogeyed eight, nine and 10 and 13. So it wasn't like Scott Piercy's game was on, uh, which gave him that big five, six shot lead. It wasn't like the, the same game had fallen. His iron game fell by, you know, three shots in the final round. His putter deserted him in the final round losing two to the field after gaining four and four the first two days, that combined putting performance was the best in his PGA tour career. And one of the best uh, statistically ever, ever through 36 holes on the PGA tour. So what this is a very long way of saying is that when a wind comes and it was swirling conditions in those twin cities. And you've been there, Luke. It's, yeah. it's not a, a pleasant place to be when it's windy sometimes in the winter during football season. The cream rises to the top. Nothing against Scott Piercy, but he hadn't won an individual event in a very long time. Hadn't won anything in four years. Tony Finau, who won last August at Liberty National. Meanwhile, he does rise to the crop. And if you look at the other names left on that leaderboard, and who winds up, you know, getting these top finishes? Sun J.M., Emiliano Grillo, James Hahn, Tom Hoagie. These are guys that have been there. These are guys that have been there. And the guys that, that fell, the Grayson Stiggs, the Jason Hadleys, the Andrew Putnams, um, the Adam Long, the Hodges, Doug Gibbs, may not have been in as experienced in windy weather. And, and that's what I think you look back on come Tuesday afternoon on the Marl Midday Show. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Brutal uh, final round for Piercy, as you said. I mean, five over. Uh, Fiennale was better than him by nine strokes. Worst score of anybody in the top 15. Uh, as we talk with Jeremy Schilling on Twitter at Jay Schill, writes for PJ Magazine, joins us every week to talk all things golf. Moving away from what we saw there this past week, and you also have Brooke Henderson uh, on the LPGA Tour, winning uh, her second major title. And as, as you described to me off air, is in a remarkable way. What stood out about the, the Henderson victory? Well, how about winning on the 72nd hole and with your sister as your caddy? Um, mm. Birdie's the 72nd hole to win. And Brooke Henderson um, has had an interesting ride. Now a two-time major champion on the LPGA Tour. And what is really interesting about her journey is you may vaguely, Luke, remember that, that there was some equipment uh, and, uh, and uh, equipment changes that came into effect at the beginning of this calendar year and also some effect on the green reading books. Vaguely remember that conversation from like New Year's? Yeah, I do. Well, she was one of two players, Phil Mickelson's the other, who was using a 48-inch driver. 
as any golfer out there knows, changing drivers are not easy if they are not the length that you are. This was her 12th LPGA Tour win. This is the second time she's won in, 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 in the year 2022. She also won at the, at the ShopRite uh, basically six weeks ago, and her third win in a span of roughly 15 months. Wasn't like Brooke Henderson was in a drought. But now to win twice in the same year, one of those being a major, in a year where you've had to make what for you was a major equipment change and going to a shorter driver that, that conformed to the rules, I'm telling you, folks, if you have ever had a battle this, it is not fun. It is very hard. Um, it's a lot easier to go from, from, let's say, 46 to 45 and a half, but to lose two inches off your driver is a major thing and it takes a lot of reps and a lot of practice. And then your short game, you know, um, you know, doesn't quite go as well as a resort, as, as a result. And, and just things just go haywire basically. So really impressive stuff from Brooke who had a big lead, lost it and then fought back to ultimately get the win over Sophia Schubert. Yeah, I would say so. Pretty impressive stuff from Brooke Henderson as we talk with Jeremy Schilling. All right, explain this to me. There are now two official FedEx Cup points lists. Uh, break that Correct. down for me. Yeah, what's up with that? Correct. Yeah, I woke up this morning. I'm like, what? Um, so shout out to Len Hochberg uh, out there and also Joel Beal from Golf Digest who noticed that Taylor Gooch, who we've talked a lot on this show about for yeah. going to the Saudi back series, is still on the FedEx Cup points list. Well, he's not going to be in the playoffs. He's suspended. We are only two weeks away from the, you know, from the Wyndham. Sorry, next week is the Wyndham, and then the week after is the playoffs. So the playoffs are right around the corner. The PGA Tour has created, and this is going to sound a lot uh, more complicated, so I'll, I'll keep it straight. Essentially, the official list, which includes the suspended players who did not resign their membership. In other words, if you resign your membership, you resign everything that came with your membership, including your place on the FedEx Cup points list, whether you were ranked second or 200 second. Make sense? Yes, I think so. Just like losing your uh, gym membership. Your whole uh, database of all your workouts probably just, you know, evaporates, right? Right, right. yep. So... What happened with the suspended guys who chose not to resign is that they were suspended and basically it's like pending. It's, it's like anything else in any other sport. Like you're pending the, the, the conclusion of your suspension. If, if, if there's some baseball brawl and some guy gets suspended four games, it's not like his batting average goes back to zero. Right. You know, he just picks up right where he leaves off after yep. the four games. So this problem came where these guys are trying to figure out what the number 125 is, and there were six players that were in that are currently inside of the top 125, including Taylor Gooch and Bryson and, and a couple others, that clearly have no place being on the FedEx Cup points list. So there's going to be something called a FedEx Cup, sorry, a tour exemption and priority ranking points list. Ignore that. Just know that that is the official official FedEx Cup uh, uh, list. That's the one you'll be seeing on Golf Channel and CBS over the next two weeks. That will ultimately give us 125, and then this problem will go away, and a new problem will show up 
which is what happens if a playoff player who's active in the playoffs leaves for the live series. Hmm. Yeah, it all sounds complex. Uh, as uh, Which, yeah. hold on, which, yeah. oh, which, which, yeah. you may remember, I spent a lot of time on this show last week talking about Sam Burns, Mark Leishman, Adam Scott, Hideki Matsuyama, all these guys about to join Live after their, the uh, President's Cup, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the PGA Tour said in the same memo that you have to be a member in good standing on the PGA Tour to be a participant in the President's Cup. So that clarifies that those four players, I would be stunned if they leave before the President's Cup. Stunned. Interesting. Yeah, so those sense. four players are a late September, October tight move to the Saudi back golf series. Henrik Stenson, Charles Howell the third, Jason Kokrak are the three main additions um, as players. Jason Kokrak has been sponsored by Golf Saudi forever. So it was like, what took you so long kind of deal? Um, the others are whatever. Stenson needs money, apparently, and Coke and uh, Howell had, had a long, uh, successful career in the PGA Tour. Not quite sure why he's making the leap. David Faraday joined as an announcer, and now the one that I know you want to get to that's hanging in limbo. Yes. What, Charles Barkley? Yes. Yeah, Barkley uh, is what? So uh, you obviously have more of the details than I do, but he's in the Pro-Am. He's set a deadline, from what I understand, by the end of Thursday for the offer. Do you think Barkley makes this move to live golf? Yeah, so folks have to realize this is two-pronged. He makes $10 million a year from Turner. He confirmed this. He has three years left on his deal. He then has all the sponsor stuff, the, the, the Capital One, Subway, all those ads you see, right? So... Mm-hmm. He would lose all of those sponsors because of the toxicity of the Saudi back league, which, which we've been talking about for months on end. Can they pay enough to make Barkley leave in a, in a move that would give him a role, roving announcer, not as a player, but as a roving announcer, is he stuck in a booth? Is he doing X, Y, Z? Um, a lot of interesting things there. I think Barkley would be crazy to do it. I hope he doesn't do it. Uh, he's got a great thing at TNT. He's talked about things he wants to do after he retires. Um, I, I just can't see him saying no, and I don't know what amount of money they could. Let, let's say 75. Let's say if you're taking in total, right, he, he, let's say he makes 80 over these next three years, he'd be set to make 80 million, let's say hypothetically mm-hmm. 30 million from Turner, 50 million from endorsements. I'm way overshooting it, right? Yep. But are we talking about like three figures? Is 75 going to be enough? Is, are, are my sponsorship numbers way too high? And it's more like he makes 40 million a year. So 75 could do it, 80 could do it. I don't know. Um, that's the real interesting question this week because I don't know how um, what he's going to ultimately decide. He wants an offer by Thursday night. He wants to leave Bedminster, New Jersey on Thursday night with an offer to uh, decide. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see what happens and uh, see what type of figures we're talking about here in the next couple of days with Barkley potentially joining 
the Live Golf Tour. Before we let you go, as we talk with Jeremy Schilling, usually on Wednesdays, joining us today here on Tuesday, uh, what do we uh, need to, to see or you know, as we look ahead to the Rocket Mortgage Challenge? Uh, who should we be on the lookout for? What should we be on the lookout for? What do you expect this weekend? First of all, a correction from yours truly. It is the Rocket Mortgage Classic. Ah. I'm thinking of the 313 Challenge, which is a thing inside of the tournament which raises money for helping bridge the digital divide in Detroit. So helping get computers, laptops, and broadband into the hands of those who need it. Wonderful cause. I got the, the two things completely confused. It is the Rocket Mortgage Classic. Um, it's a it's a pretty good field. It's very top heavy, very top heavy. So you're going to hear these names all week: Cantlay, Zalatoris, Renau, Homa, Cam Young, Kisner, Cam Davis. Um, you know, you're 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 going to hear those names: Matt Kuchar. Right, and then it's a whole bunch of other people. I don't know when Patrick Cantlay is going to wake up, um, but he's kind of been sitting there um, and has really had an inconsistent season where you see his name and he hasn't finished the deal. Um, So I'm thinking, you know, he's somebody who, since May has gone third, 14th, third, fourth, and eighth, and I don't re- really think we've talked a lot about him on this show. Um, at a 76 in the final round in Hartford, and it just hasn't really pulled pulled the deal. Yeah, he won the Zurich Classic of New Orleans, but that was alongside Xander. So I'm thinking maybe this is Cantlay's week. All right. We'll see if it happens this weekend. Flip it, Trent. Flip it. That's right. You heard it here first. Uh, we'll see if uh, if that's what transpires here this weekend. He's our resident golf expert, Jeremy Schilling, on Twitter at jshill, writes for PGA Magazine. He joins us every week. Jeremy, appreciate the time. As always, we'll let you get back to your uh, training camp uh, breakdowns, and we'll catch up with you next week. Well, I'm going to give you another prediction. Oh. I have a history of big Nick trades happening while I've not been in the area. Uh-huh. So I think either – so sometime between – Tomorrow, midday, and Saturday night, the Donovan Mitchell trade happens. Wow. Or or the official is not happening. But there will be a resolution in the time that I'm not here. All right. We'll see. There's another one. Uh, Calling your shots for this week. Yeah, I remember, speaking of big Knicks trades, uh, I remember you were in Punta Cana when they traded for Eddie Curry way back when. Big Knicks trade that you must have missed back then. Oh, yeah. All those no, great Knicks I trades. Was, when, when, they got, when they got Carmelo Anthony, I was in Israel. Oh, okay. Well, that qualifies. I was on vacation in Israel and woke up to a bunch of text messages and found all the Knicks fans that I knew that were on this trip and you know were, were wearing Knicks shirts in the breakfast room. They're like, what? You know, all, all <laughs> groggy and stuff. It's like, what? We did what? I'm like, yep. Yeah. Good morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll see if uh, Donovan Mitchell gives you a similar uh, experience this week with uh, some Can sort of Can we go further in the playoffs than, than those mellow years? Yeah, Can seriously. Can we go further? I know. Win a couple games this time. 
Uh, we'll see. That, that would be really nice to win some games. Yeah, yeah that would be really nice. Yeah, Mitchell. Thank you, Luke. Chat. Thanks, Trent. I appreciate it. We'll talk with you next week. Jeremy Schilling, our resident golf expert on Twitter at Jay Schill. It reminds me of a story that um, I remember when Brett Favre wanted to go to the Vikings. The Packers obviously weren't going to send him to the Vikings, so he had to play that one year with the Jets. Got all of our hopes up in Minnesota. And I wish it was on. It was like ten phones ago. I wish I still had the text. I remember sending a text message to actually the baseball coach at my high school growing up back in the day. Uh, and I said, if we get Brett Favre, we, the Minnesota Vikings being a Vikings fan, if we get Brett Favre next year, we'll be in the NFC Championship game. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. They got Favre first year, they go to the NFC Championship game. But my family and I happened to go on a cruise that, that summer before Favre came to the Vikings, and the news broke while we were on the cruise that Brett Favre was officially signing with the Vikings and was reporting to training camp. It happened Around this time, he didn't want to go to training camp. He didn't want to do all the off-season stuff, so he made his decision around now. And actually, I think it was August. And um, I think it was like right before the first preseason game. He even sued up the first preseason game, if I remember correctly. He joined the team in August. We were on a cruise, and if you've ever been on a cruise, and this was going back, you know, this was going back 2009. This was 13 years ago. Things were a little different technology-wise. We hit a spot on the cruise, I don't know why, when I got a random text message. And I got a text message from a buddy that said something. It was very vague, but it said something about Favre. And I thought, wait a minute. Does this mean that Brett Favre just officially signed with the Vikings? And I told my uh, family. And so we had a computer with us. One of my brothers or my dad brought his laptop, whatever it was. And if you've ever been on a cruise, you know the Internet is outrageous. But we had to hop on that Internet and pay for like an hour of Internet. It's like 20 bucks an hour or whatever it was. But we said, we got to go on ESPN.com. we got to see if Brett Favre's a Viking. And so similar to Jeremy's experience with Carmelo Anthony as a Knicks fan, uh, that's how we found out that Brett Favre officially came to the Vikings. We happened to hit a spot in the middle of nowhere where I got cell service randomly. I don't know why I even was even leaving my phone on. And uh, a text came through, uh, and I thought, hold on, we may have just got Favre. We fired up the old laptop, paid whatever, 50 bucks for Internet for two minutes just to see, oh, yeah, Favre, he did sign with the Vikings. And it made the uh, trip even more enjoyable. Charles Barkley, we'll see if he winds up a live golf tour. We'll probably know by the end of the week, as Jeremy reiterated there. He set a deadline for Thursday night. I think it would be very fascinating. Now, I'm an average golf fan, as you know, if you listen to the show. So if you want to take these other golfers, it doesn't affect me too much. You want to take Barkley away from inside the NBA? Okay, now I'm going to have a little bit of a problem because I love watching that show during the NBA season. There's a belief he wouldn't do both. But I find it interesting for a couple different reasons. Number one, because he's always been like the Teflon Don. We love Barkley. He could say whatever he wants. He could put down a whole city. He could call women you know, this, uh, uh, unattractive or whatever the terms were he used in the past. He could make fun of play everything. And it doesn't matter. We all love Barkley, myself included. So I'm very curious to see if this move you know, sends some shock waves like some other guys in the golf world or if it's just like, ah, oh, that's okay, it's Charles Barkley. Well, people have some negative things to say. The other part of it is that Barkley, he doesn't care. He'll say whatever he wants. He'll do whatever he wants. Usually when you have enough money, you can do those things. Um, and we've seen that going back to my last point, that on these shows on TNT, he'll say whatever he, he doesn't care. He'll make fun of anybody. He'll say things that will mo- get most people in trouble. He doesn't think twice about it. So it'll be an interesting match to go to Live Golf Tour where I don't think Barkley is losing much sleep over the idea. I don't think he cares what people would say about him. I'm sure he's a little bit different in that sense than a lot of others that may be stressing about those things. Barkley doesn't care. He just see it, I'm sure, as like a business opportunity, as a way to make more money. Which then takes me to the third part, 
that he'd probably be a great teammate for the other guys at the Live Golf Tour and probably would just be great for the tour in general. He would support them. There's already some clips going around about things he said last week in support of the idea of potentially going to the Live Golf Tour. So he'd be a great mouthpiece for them to have, especially because I go back to the original point I made, nothing sticks to him. We all love him. He could say whatever he wants. So he'd be like a great spokesperson a spokesperson for the Live Golf Tour uh, because he's Charles Barkley. So it'd be fascinating to see if it happens. And then if it were, you know, then you get into the interesting part of like, okay, what is his role actually going to be with them? And will he have to leave TNT? That'd be the biggest issue for me. Right, if guys are going to live golf tour, I don't get too bent out of shape. But if you're going to steal Charles Barkley away from my winter entertainment on Tuesdays and uh, mostly Thursday nights in the NBA season, especially in the playoffs, I'm going to be really disappointed because that's the best show on TV, and I love Barkley on that show. When we come back, I guess you could say bold. I feel like we use that term a little too loosely, but bold predictions for the SEC this year. It's the Morning Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Overhead Door Company, the original garage door company, serving you for over 90 years. Call 843-767-0028 or overheaddoorco.com. Overhead Door Company of Charleston, proud to open hour two of the Morrow Midday Show. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Let's talk bold predictions for the SEC here on the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow on ESPN Radio. Appreciate the time. Last segment from Jeremy Schilling, who joins us every week to talk golf. If you ever miss anything from the show, you can always catch it on demand, such as that conversation. Just search ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcast. And the podcast is also available online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Just click on our show page. Bold predictions. We always use this word, I think, far too loosely goes back to what I said yesterday and have said many times before about how hyperbolic we can be in this industry, maybe myself included at times. I'll put myself in that camp. There's nothing worse than a media member railing against the media, not realizing that they're part of the media. I am technically, quote-unquote, part of the media. So I acknowledge the, the pros and the cons of the industry and maybe myself included here on the Mormon Day Show. Anyways, I'll save a, another rant from you. But when we say bold, right, I always look up uh, these articles, bold takes, and it says Alabama's going to go undefeated. I don't think that's that bold. I think bold, you have to be kind of, you got to kind of go out on a limb. You got to be a little ballsy. We'll talk about a few here. But remember, we played some audio last week where Takeo Spikes picked the Gamecocks to beat Georgia this season, third week of the season. Now, maybe it could happen. South Carolina's beaten Georgia before. In fact, they have the best record against Georgia of anybody in that division over the past 12 years. They have as many wins against Georgia as Missouri, Vanderbilt, Tennessee do combined in the past 12 years. So the Gamecocks, as you know, if you're a Gamecock fan, they've done pretty good with Georgia in the past dozen seasons. Now we have Chris Doring, who goes on record and has another upset prediction for Georgia. A lot of people maybe not too high on Georgia right now. Here's what Chris Doring had to say when uh, asked on the SEC Network um, for his bold take 
for this upcoming SEC season. Here's what he had to say. Am I shot? Am I shooting first? I don't know. What I'm a shooter. Shoot I'm going to regurgitate a shot I took yesterday, right? Okay. And you may remember this, but I was waffling myself before really feeling confident about it. Mm -hmm. I'm taking the Kentucky Wildcats on the 19th of November Ooh. as the Georgia Bulldogs come to Lexington, Kentucky knocking off Georgia, the defending national championship. I, I again, I made sure at that point that you. I looked had, in the camera. I'm going to do it again. And you absolutely did it. I'm looking in the camera here. November 19th, Kentucky over Georgia. Uh, all right. That was Chris Doring's bold take. Kentucky beats Georgia. So we got to Keo Spike saying Georgia's going to lose to South Carolina. We got Chris Doring saying Georgia's going to lose to Kentucky. Goes back to a conversation I was having a few weeks back off air about how Georgia, it's like people already forgot they won the national championship. We're already focusing on Alabama. Georgia's the Rodney Dangerfield of college football. Nobody's given them their respect. They won the national championship. They had a historically good defense, and we're still not buying into it. And whether that's because of the 40-year buildup that it took for them finally to win, whether it's because they lost to Alabama the first time and then beat them in the national championship when there were some injuries and people may write off that success and say, yeah, but yeah, you lost to them last time. If you played again, you'd probably lose. Maybe it's because they lost, what, 15 guys to the NFL that you think they're going to take a big step back. Or maybe many still can't get over the fact that Stetson Bennett won a national championship and believe he can't do that again. But I do find it interesting of how underrated Georgia seems to be going into the year in the sense that nobody's buying into them. You think they may lose to South Carolina? You think they uh, may lose to Kentucky? They're going to have multiple losses. Look, I don't think Georgia's going to win the national championship again. I do think Alabama's the better team. But I also think Georgia has every opportunity to run the table this year. In the non-conference, they get Oregon week one. Sounds interesting, but it's in Georgia. It's a quote-unquote neutral site game. It's not. It's in Georgia. Oregon has a long way to go. It's a Georgia home game. And on the flip side, you have Dan Lanning, who I know just came from Georgia, but he's never been a head coach before. Oregon wasn't good enough to begin with to compete with Georgia. Now you take away Mario Cristobal and put a first-time head coach. I think Georgia wins that game. It could be intriguing, maybe like the Clemson game a year ago to start the year. I think Georgia will be okay. Then you get Sanford, you get Kent State, and, of course, Georgia Tech at the end of the year. Those will all be wins. In the conference, we know the usual suspects, the Gamecocks. You get Missouri, you get Vanderbilt, Florida, Tennessee. The only ones of those games I just listed on the road, truly on the road, are at Missouri. That should be an easy win. At South Carolina, you know, the Gamecocks have surprised them in the past, maybe. And then you get cross-division. You get uh, Mississippi State, and you get Auburn. Mississippi State should be an easy win. Most people will tell you Auburn will be an easy win as well. In fact, Georgia has what is ranked as the easiest schedule in the SEC for an SEC team this year. Because they're the best team in their division, and in the cross-divisional games, the teams they get from the other division, you get Mississippi State and Auburn, which very well could be the two worst teams. So I find it really interesting. Everybody seems to be down on Georgia, and maybe it's just one game. They're coming up with a bold take. They think, well, I think Georgia's going to lose to Kentucky, or they're going to lose to South Carolina, or Tennessee's going to beat them. Right? But then you kind of add all these things up. It's like, wow, everybody think, right? if you take everyone's opinion and combine it together, they think every one, every single SEC game is a losable game for Georgia. And I know this is not the same team as Georgia a year ago that won the national championship, but none of their SEC games in the regular season were even close last year. They beat everybody by 30. I know they lost most of that starting defense, lost their defensive coordinator. It's hard to follow up the success you just had a year ago. 
But I do just find it interesting that uh, they're not getting as much love as maybe a normal defending national champ. And some people believe they're going to be very vulnerable in a lot of these conference games. Now, if I give you my bold takes, again, that's too strong of a word. I don't really have a bold take in the SEC. I don't see it as bold, maybe because I think it's what's going to happen. But I would tell you, and maybe this would be bold in the eyes of others, I think Auburn's going to be better than a lot of people think. I think they go over their win total of six. I think they go to a bowl game this year. Uh, they win seven to eight games. Most people think they're going to be a disaster, and Brian Harson's going to be fired. Maybe. But last year, they were 6-2, and two, and then their quarterback got injured. And also, last year, they had a couple of good wins uh, in the SEC. I mean, they beat number 17, Arkansas. They beat number 10, Ole Miss. And that's pretty good. And they lost to number 10, Penn State, by a score. Uh, they lost to Alabama. They should have beaten Alabama, remember. The, whole, the last season would have been completely different. They should have beaten Alabama if uh, Tank Bigsby went out of bounds. They lost in four overtimes to number three Alabama and blew that game. And just because, uh, I think, recency bias, the way the season ended, look, they did lose their last six games or last five games of the season. Both coordinators are gone. They tried to fire Harson. I get it. But I think that's ignoring the rest of the season, just focusing on the drama at the end of the year. I think Auburn will be a lot better than people anticipate. Uh, I think, weren't they finished to pick last in the the preseason poll by the media? I don't think so. I think Auburn's going to be better than you think this year. I think Texas A&M is going to be worse than most people think. I think Texas A&M will be, I think last year will probably be the ceiling for A&M this year. I don't think we'll see much improvement out of them this year. I think Ole Miss will take a step back from last year. So here, I'll give you a bold take. I'm coming up with it on the spot. We believe the West Division will be the best division in college football, and you can understand why. Because Alabama will be the favorite in college football. I think Arkansas will be really good. I think they'll be the third best team in the SEC. And then there's potential for everybody else. Brian Kelly, I do believe, will turn around LSU. Lane Kiffin at Ole Miss, they were a top-10 team last year. Texas A&M, people think they could be a top-10 team this year. And then you have Mississippi State and Auburn. I'm going to make the claim now that the West Division, I don't know how to put this in proper context, but it won't be as good as you think. It won't wind up being quite as good. Alabama and Arkansas will be the top two teams, clearly. And then I think Ole Miss is going to take a step back from a year ago. I don't expect a ton out of Texas A&M. Mike Leach and Mississippi State I don't think are ready yet. LSU will be better, but come back to me a year from now. And Auburn will be underrated but still won't compete for the SEC. I think you'll have Alabama clearly at the top. You'll have Arkansas like a step below them. And then everybody else will kind of be bunched up after that. And you'll have some 7-5 and fives teams. I'll call that my bold prediction. In the East, I think Georgia wins. I think uh, South Carolina, Florida take a step forward. I think Tennessee takes a big step forward. I think Missouri will be back. I don't know if any of those are bold, but that's how I see the East playing out this year. When we come back, it's time for Trent's Takes. The Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. If you ever miss anything from the show, catch it on the man. Search ESPN Radio Charleston. However, you listen to your podcasts. Or find the podcast online, charlestonsportsradio.com, by clicking on our show page. Hey, we do it around this time each and every day. It's time now to find out what's on the mind of the producer. It's time for Trent's Takes. 
What's on the mind of the Morrow Midday Show producer? Draft Luke Morrow. That's right. It's time for Trent's Takes. The Radio Cowboy will be coming, and he's coming soon, folks. Luke, you know, I mentioned it at the beginning of the show, but my goodness, we got to go back to the Aaron Rodgers video coming into training camp. Absolutely incredible. He looked jacked. He looked bigger than usual. Looked like Aaron put on some weight, ready to take some hits this season. Obviously, with David Bakhtiari still coming back, trying to be healthy. He's played in 13 games over the last two seasons we need the big giraffe back but Aaron looks good folks I don't want to guarantee anything right here but plus 1200 to win the MVP I think he gets his fifth ties Peyton Manning back to back to back MVPs you do not wear an outfit like that Luke Morrow going into training camp without the utmost confidence and not only yourself but the team around you, and it's a young team, obviously, a lot of new pieces. I got a lot of trust in Alan Lazard. I think Sammy Watkins, if anybody's going to unlock Aaron, uh, Sammy Watkins' true potential, that's going to be Aaron Rodgers. Christian Watson's on the PUP list as of right now, but he should be back ready to go for week one of the season. But, man, I got so fired up when I saw that video, Luke, and I'm happy, happy that that was put out by the Packers, obviously giving him a lot of praise, as he should. Four-time MVP, Super Bowl champion, Super Bowl MVP. What more do you want from the guy? Bada-bing, bada-boom, that video comes out. Nick Cage, absolutely incredible, Luke. I loved it, loved it. So much confidence in my Packers this year. Even as a Vikings fan, I enjoyed it, uh, seeing that video, because I do love that movie, and I love the reference. Now, looking at it, I do think Rodgers does look good. I agree with you. He looks a little bigger. Comparing the side-by-side, I think Nick Cage was buffer in Con Air than Rodgers. But Nick Cage already had the receding hairline going. Yeah. So Rodgers has the better hair. Cage was a little beefier, but Rodgers got the better hair going. So I guess you could say it's a wash. Uh, but he did. He, he looks a lot like him. Right. He pulled it off great. The undershirt tucked into the jeans is quite the look. But, of course, that's what Nick Cage did. Uh, I, I, I'm... I have to bulk up because I would never – I can't walk around in public with just the undershirt on. I couldn't do it. So uh, props to them, and I, I love the move from Rodgers today. Yeah, I mean, that encouraged me to bulk up and yeah. also maybe get a long hair move That's and potentially right. get some kind of, you know, tattoo that shows the world as a whole. You know, yeah. and just instead of a small little earth, it's the, the universe, as he was trying to explain. Can't wait for this football season, Luke. Also, you mentioned it. Hate to see Justin Ross going back on the IR for this season. That first season at Clemson was absolutely incredible. When I I watched him and you know I'm a receiver nerd I love the receivers he was one of the best I had ever seen in college football that first season it was incredible Luke Morrow the one-handed catch in the national championship game getting the foot down absolutely amazing he's he's got strength he's got size he's got speed we didn't see it a lot last year just at Clemson just because he was a little banged up and also him and DJ just seemed a little off their chemistry was a tad bit off but man I feel bad for Justin Ross right now hopefully he can get back to full strength because we need to see this guy with the Kansas City Chiefs If anybody's going to unlock his potential, that's Patrick Mahomes throwing him a deep ball. So I hope, hope that he's not cut or anything like that and we can get him back in a Chiefs uniform next season. Yeah, if he could stay healthy and if he's close enough, I don't know if he can ever be 100% after all he's gone through. I mean, he had neck and spine issues that required surgery. That's difficult to uh, continue to move forward and play football at the highest level or at 100%. And now he's got, you know, this foot problem where they're going back in to get surgery on his foot again, which sounds troubling as well. So... It's uh, obviously a sucky story, and hopefully we get to a point maybe next year where he's healthy, he could be out there, because I do agree with you. If he's healthy, if he's on the field, if he's at least 80% something, uh, I think he could um, still do some things in the NFL, especially with the Chiefs. But, yeah, uh, if you're a Clemson fan, more sad news for Justin Ross yesterday 
as he goes on the IR and will miss his rookie year. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Luke, speaking of wide receivers, I wanted to get your opinion on this because it's been talked about the last couple weeks. Obviously, for the past couple years, the best one-two punch quarterback wide receiver duo was Aaron Rodgers and Devontae Adams. I don't think anybody came close. Now they're not together, and I don't think we can say that Derek Carr and Devontae Adams are the best just yet because we haven't seen them. So I'm going to throw a couple names at you, and can you decide right now in the NFL in 2022 who is the best quarterback wide receiver duo? Is it Stafford and Cup? Is it Burrow and Chase? Is it Mahomes and Kelsey? Right now, Luke, potentially even Josh Allen, Stephon Diggs. Who do you think is the best one-two punch? Man, that's a good question. My immediate thought was Cooper Cup Stafford because Cooper Cup is the number one wide receiver, but I don't know if Stafford's high enough on the quarterback list sure. to balance it out. It's a great question because most people probably say like Mahomes, Tyreek, but now he's gone. You could say, like you said, Rodgers, Devontae, that connection's gone. Um, I really don't have a great answer. Maybe Josh Allen is Stephon Diggs right now. I think that could be. That could be the main option. I'm going to have to say Burrow and Chase just That's because of the chemistry too. as of right now. And also, Luke, I don't know if you saw this. About two hours ago, GQ Magazine is doing a piece on uh, Jamar Chase because he's an incredibly fashionable human being, as we've seen. And here's a quote that shocked me. Joe, and this is from Jamar Chase. Joe literally won't buy his own clothes. He always asked me to shop for him and drop it off at his house. And by the way, there was a story a couple months ago that when Jamar Chase was drafted to the Cincinnati Bengals, he went knocking on doors in Joe Burrow's neighborhood and tried to buy everyone's house that was as close to Joe Burrow as possible. Their best buds. After hearing that quote, there is nobody better in the NFL as a one-two punch than the guys who went to LSU are now at the Cincinnati Bengals, put up incredible numbers last Last year, if the Bengals can, you know, will stop being cheap and pay these guys, they can keep them around for a long time. I think that is the best one-two punch in the NFL right now. That's a fair point. They got that connection that probably no one else does. He's buying him his clothes. I love that. <laughs> no. You know, I come to you for fashion advice, so we're <laughs> one step away from you showing up at my door with my latest wardrobe. Now, I like this idea, Joe Burrow. Good move. Yeah, Luke. Quite honestly, my man, I would be honored. I'd be honored <laughs> if you asked me to go shop for you, and I would, you know, pick, you got to pay for it, obviously, but I would pick out some incredible things for you there's no doubt about it you mentioned the kyler murray uh, that's very interesting look you watch film you know for the citadel and things of that nature i i'm doing high school football hopefully coming up soon and uh, i'll be watching a lot of film i think it's absolutely asinine that kyler murray can't spend four hours during a singular week and watch game film and newsflash but it doesn't all go to your head you can't retain it he's a great quarterback he's a great talent but the film study is one of the most important things for uh, a quarterback, Aaron Rodgers talks about it all the time, that during the season, if he's not practicing, which the guy really doesn't need to practice, I mean, he didn't practice basically the entire season last year and still won the MVP, he's watching film. That's what he does, and that's what all these quarterbacks do. Tom Brady, I remember on the Manning cast, when Tom Brady was on there, he literally pointed out one of the Saints' DBs and said, that's a third-round pick from Louisville, gave his stats, gave his numbers, what he likes to do. Kyler Murray probably couldn't do that right now, and that's what separates the good from the great. It's absolutely insane to me that Kyler Murray is not studying film as much as he should. I'm never going to tell a man how to do his job, and obviously it's, it worked for Kyler so far. They haven't had team success, but he got that $160 million guaranteed. Yep. So I guess it's worked to a point, but if you want to get over the edge, you have to put in that extra effort 
to be good and be great like you do, like hopefully I'll do one day. It's just a part of the gig. It's a part of the game. You, you That's what you're supposed to do, man. The film is giving you, all, all my coaches used to say this, the film is giving you what's going to happen. You watch the film, you understand what's going to happen. You break down every player, you know what's going to happen. Kyler Murray, what it seems like, is just going out there blind. Just a blind guy. I mean, it's absolutely incredible, Luke. Yeah, I, I feel vindicated. I was saying all offseason, don't pay him yet. He hasn't proven it. And now we get this story where obviously the team knew about this. We, as football fans, didn't know. It's further uh, further proof why I wouldn't have given this huge contract yet. If you can't trust your guy to sit down and watch film during the week, that's troubling. And you're going to give him 160 guaranteed. You reference Tom Brady. It's a classic example. Everybody knows, right? He's always the first one in, last one out. He's watching film all the time. He's the greatest of all time. That's what it takes. Uh, um Peyton Manning and Eli, just for the Manning cast, are probably watching more films still today than Kyler Murray is. Uh, that's what the that's what the greats do. Michael Jordan knew his opponents better than anybody. It's it's part of the process. And as I said earlier, you don't get paid for the fun stuff. Uh, you don't get paid for the games in this case. What you're getting paid for is to put in all the work to be ready for the game. You go out there and play the game. That's what you want to do. These guys, a lot of them, would would play for free if they could. Right? You would love to go play in a football game. Uh, that's the enjoyable part. That's the passion, but it's the work you have to put in, the grind, the all the hours before that is why you get compensated the way you do, and Kyler's obviously not doing that. And the last thing I'll say, I'll even watch game film in the NFL. I have NFL Game yeah. Pass. I'll go back and I rewatch uh, all the games throughout the week. I'll watch the all 22 in certain cases. I probably watch more game film than Kyler Murray about these NFL teams. Yeah, we're NFL nerds. We love to do yeah. it. I, I, I watch games back all the time just because. I mean, they're doing it right now on the NFL Network and ESPN and things where they're showing old games. I'll watch them, and I'm watching specific positions, specific players, because I want to learn more about them. That's just from a fan perspective. Kyler, what are we doing, sir? And last thing here, Luke Morrow, a lot of talk about Lamar Jackson, obviously, all this off season he's at training camp without a contract extension as of right now plus 2,000 to win the MVP I think you can lock that in uh, Aaron Rodgers or Lamar Jackson those are the two guys that are going to win the MVP this year this is scorched earth Lamar Jackson he wants to prove everybody wrong with zero weapons around him outside of Mark Andrews I think he's gonna have a phenomenal season yeah I, I tend to agree that I think he's gonna leave it all out there to try to prove his point I, I mentioned this yesterday there's two ways guys could go either he could be a little conservative he doesn't want to get injured before you know uh, his off season or you you ball out to just increase uh, your rate even more and I think Lamar Jackson will certainly try to leave it all out there I will say though the whole you know not having an agent his mother helps him he has no um uh like local commercials he has no sponsorships justin tucker has more that's where you could really use an agent if you don't want an agent to take five percent of your nfl contract okay but they're going to help you make more money as well with all these other sponsorships and uh i think that makes this whole process harder as well that it's lamar and his mother trying to work with different teams but he's in for a big payday uh over the next 12 months for sure and maybe another mvp award hey we'll wrap up hour two when we come back um uh, there was uh, something. Oh, yeah, I know. Darius Leonard's changing his name. We'll get to that. It's the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Wrapping up hour two of the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Darius Leonard is changing his name. 
He's from Lakeview, South Carolina, played at South Carolina State, was drafted in the second round four years ago by the Colts. Uh, one of the best linebackers, are, you know, has been one of the best linebackers in the league, captain of the Colts. When he met with media today to kick off uh, the training camps for the Colts, he said he now wants to be known as Shaquille Leonard. Apparently, uh, from what I saw, he said, I didn't hear the actual audio, but somebody said that, uh, reported that he said that's his real name. If you go on Wikipedia, his name's listed as Darius Shaquille Leonard. They have it as his middle name. But based off of the secondhand report, they're saying that his actual real first name is Shaquille. And his family always calls him, has always called him Shaquille. But he's gone by Darius Leonard as the football player. So now moving forward, he'll be Shaq Leonard. So if you hear that name and you're confused, that's the reason why. Darius Leonard, one of the best linebackers in the league from right here in South Carolina, now going by Shaq Leonard. When I worked in minor league baseball, we had this a lot. Uh, one example that just immediately pops to mind was uh, Dan Vogelback, who just got traded to the Mets. It was originally Vogelback. Then the next year he said, actually, I want to be known as Vogelbach. And then he changed it back again to Vogelback. I, don't, I think now it's Vogelbach again. I have no idea. It's a slight change. It's the pronunciation of his last name. But there's always guys. David Ortiz, who just went into the Hall of Fame. He was David Arias was his real name when he was with the Twins. And then he was David Ortiz later on in his career, and now that's what you know him as. So Darius Leonard, the latest to change his name. Hour three, coming up next. This is the Morrow Midday Show. But wait, there's more. On ESPN Radio. Back, 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 back again. Shady's back. Final hour of the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. If you ever miss anything from the show, catch it on demand. Search ESPN Radio Charleston. However, you listen to your podcast. And the podcast is available online at charlestonsportsradio.com by clicking on our show page. You can always join the conversation at charlestonsportsradio.com by clicking on the show page, leaving a comment there. Get to us on Twitter at Morrow Middays. Text the show, 843-608-1734. Or you can always join the conversation. On the phones, 843-721-9500. Hey, you have another chance to get blood and help save a life tomorrow at the American Red Cross Blood Drive. Going on at Cruise Chevrolet tomorrow, 11 to 4 p.m., 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. in North Charleston. Sign up today at redcrossblood.org. Use the sponsor code CRUISE. Walk-ins are welcome. Appointments always preferred. And all donors... Receive a complimentary certificate for an oil and filter change, tire rotation, and more, and will be entered for a chance to win an exclusive Shark Week merchandise package, including a kayak, paddleboard, and more, going on tomorrow, July 27th, at Cruise Chevy in North Charleston. Head over there, give blood, help save a life, and uh, get something cool out of it as well, including a gift card for your car and potentially some cool Shark Week merchandise which I believe has begun. So head over there to the blood drive tomorrow at uh, Cruise Chevy in North Charleston. Hey, I just saw, you know, um, they honored, and it was a great thing, Rachel Robinson, Jackie Robinson's wife at the All-Star break. 
You know, she turned 100 years old the day of the All-Star game, which is amazing. And I just saw online she was uh, cutting the – she was at, like, uh, the ribbon-cutting ceremony for uh, something with Jackie's um, uh, Hall of Fame. And uh, it's amazing. She's 100 years old, right? You figure Jackie passed away now, I, I believe it was 50 years ago. It's been 50 years. And uh, you think back to when he broke the color barrier. They're about 20. That was 75 years ago, right? She was already a grown woman. She was in her 20s with Jackie going through that. And now it's been 75 years since. It's amazing. She's 100. And I saw in this video her son was cutting the ribbon with her. Her son is 70, which is amazing. It's like the Mandelbaums in Seinfeld. So it's great. Rachel Robinson just turned 100 last week. She was out there in the public today cutting the ribbon with her son, David, who he himself is 70 years old. And uh, that's great, right, to have your mother around until you're in your 70s is fantastic. Uh, Rachel was uh, – you pay so much attention, of course, to what Jackie did, and rightfully so, but obviously Rachel was such a big supporting part behind them, allowing him to go through all that. And uh, she's done a lot of, of good and a lot of great things since Jackie's passing all those years ago. But she's 100. Her son's 70. It's amazing. And happy belated birthday to Rachel Robinson. Speaking of baseball, the trade deadline is a week from today. Now, I referenced earlier and yesterday, in fact, the movie Moneyball, where in the movie, the whole thing is spurned on, it's brought on, and it's fairly inaccurate. Moneyball really began with Sandy Alderson in the 90s, and he gets no credit for it. Billy Bean was his assistant. Then Billy Bean became the GM, and there was a book written about Moneyball, and they gave it a name. Whenever you give something a name, and it becomes a marketing campaign, right? It's a big deal. Now suddenly it's Moneyball. And it takes on a life of its own, and Billy Bean's credited with it, but it really started far before him in Oakland, before he was even the GM. But in the movie, they also give a lot of credit to Jonah Hill's character, who I believe is based on Paul D. Batesta, who was working in baseball and now is helping to run the Browns and was very analytical, still is very analytical. But the idea of people looking at baseball the wrong way. And that on-base percentage is the most important thing. And how many runs can they score? I think we're still looking at things the wrong way in baseball. And with the trade deadline a week away, we may see some big names move. And nowadays in baseball, you know, that big name, the big-time player is a guy that will clobber a lot of home runs, but the batting average will be pretty low. And that's baseball today, the three-result game, where it's about homers, walks, strikeouts. You don't need to put the ball in play. You don't have to steal bases. don't have to do hit and runs. None of the above. Just simply wait around until you get that big home run. And we talk about this a lot on the air whenever we break down baseball because I think many in baseball, in the sport itself, in those front offices are still looking at the sport the wrong way. If you go back and you look over the past decade, if you look at just the last 10 years, all the teams that participated in the World Series, 20 of them in total, you add them up, you get an average rank in home runs of 13 for the league. The average World Series participant last decade ranks 13th in the league in home runs hit. Good, not great. Essentially middle of the road, right? not in the top 10. Rarely, if ever, do they actually lead the league in homers. But if you also look at those same winners over the past 10 years, the teams that have actually won a World Series, the 10 teams that have won the last 10 World Series all were better hitting teams than league average. They all had better team batting averages than the league average batting average. Of the last 10 World Series champions, one led the league in homers. That was the Dodgers when they won during the, the bubble season, which is a bit of an outlier in itself. But otherwise, in the past decade, 
Three of the World Series champions led the league in batting average. Two others finished number two. So half of the last ten World Series champions were top two in the league in batting average. Only one was top two in homers. So what has been more valuable, right? The ability to still put the ball in play, to still string some hits together, or the ability to just simply crush a lot of homers. Additionally, more than half of the last 10 World Series winners also struck out fewer times than league average. So this idea that, ah, homers, strikeouts, that's baseball, it's fine. Let's get a guy who's going to hit 250, strike out 150 times, but also hit 30 homers. I still don't know if that's what's best for baseball. I don't know if that's the best way to build your team. Maybe over the course of a long 162-game, six-month season, but we see it a lot in all sports that by the time you get to the playoffs, things become a little bit different. You can't necessarily win with just the three-pointer. You can't necessarily win in football by just simply throwing the football. And in baseball, we know the Yankees have certainly proven it over the past 13 years. You can't just win by hitting a lot of homers. And if you go back and look, last 10 World Series champs were all better hitting teams, just simply batting average-wise, than they were home runs. Now, to further prove the point, if you go back to this past offseason, the 12 players in Major League Baseball this past offseason that signed contracts of more than $100 million, of those 12, none of them made an All-Star game this year. So I think teams are kind of investing in the wrong areas. You're giving guys money that will have low batting averages, that will hit a bunch of home runs, that will strike out a bunch, that may walk a good amount of time, right? aren't necessarily great average hitters anymore, but they get on base, they hit homers. You're giving them all sorts of money, and you're not getting the bang for your buck. The investment is not paying off. The 12 highest-paid free agents this past offseason all missed the All-Star game this year. So I think a lot of those in baseball are still looking at things the wrong way. Right? Flip the uh, telescope around. I think batting average, call me old school, I think it's still important. The ability to put the ball in play. When you do so, a lot of times good things can happen for you. The ability to still get a hit with two strikes or two outs or to beat clutch, get some big hits with runners in scoring position and two outs in an inning, that's always crucial. I think these are the things that still win, not just crushing homers, and the data kind of backs it up. Last 10 years, only one team in the top two in home runs for that season. But the last 10 winners... Five of them are top two in batting average. I think average is still more important than homers. We'll see what happens over the next week with the trade deadline coming up a week from today. And if the Braves make a move, they obviously just lost Adam Duvall this week for the rest of the season. We'll see if the Mets uh, remain aggressive with Steve Cohen as the owner. But it's going to be really fascinating to see. The Mets have a two-game lead over the Braves. We head towards the final two months of the season. And that's going to be the biggest spot, as of now, in the playoff standings, in the playoff bracket. The Dodgers will lock up a bye for the NL, and the winner of the NL East will probably lock up the second bye because they have that big of a lead on the NL Central. The way the playoff seeding now works for Major League Baseball is the three division winners get the top three spots. The three wild cards, regardless of records, get spots four, five, and six. Then the top two teams get a bye. Right, We now have six playoff teams in each league. Top two get a bye. The other four play each other, and then we wind up with four teams remaining in the NL, four teams remaining in the AL, and you move forward. Whoever wins the National League East will most likely get that second bye. Whoever loses the National League East most likely would be the four seed. Not only would you have to play in the first round, but as of now, you'd have to play a team like the San Diego Padres, which would be the toughest matchup for anybody in the first round, anybody other than the sixth seed, that is. If you finish 
as a division winner, you get a first-round bye. You get a home field advantage a little bit longer, depending on the future matchups. And you also don't have to worry about facing, say, the San Diego Padres in the first round. You can sit at home in the first round and see what happens after that. The Braves and the Mets are separated by only two games, but whoever wins that division, that may be the most impactful thing on October. And that's exactly what Major League Baseball was hoping for when they came up with this current idea. It's probably only going to play out that way with the NL East. The Yankees and the Astros are going to wrap up the buys in the AL. The Dodgers will wrap up one of the buys. But then it's going to come down to the Mets and the Braves. And whoever wins that division, they'll get a buy. And the team that doesn't win the division, they'll be stuck playing in the first round against a pretty good Padres team not getting said buy and making their road a little bit harder. It'll be really fascinating to see what happens these next two months with the Braves trailing the Mets by only two games, the two of them playing one another plenty the rest of the way, and with the trade deadline looming a week from now. Which team's going to make the big move? Which team will be aggressive? And much like realignment in college football, when one side does something, the other side has to react. If the SEC adds more teams, the Big Ten must add more teams. If the Big Ten's going to add Notre Dame, the SEC will probably have to respond. We're getting this idea, too, of the Big Ten looking into some sort of way where maybe the players can get a portion of the money. If they ever were to pull something off like that, you know, the SEC probably would try to do something similar. You always have to try to stay one step ahead. And so with the Mets and the Braves, you may feel confident if you're the Braves front office or the Mets front office. You may feel pretty good about your team. You feel like you don't have to add much. Even if the other team does something, you can still feel pretty good. Like, oh, that's okay, right? They had holes to fill. We don't. But I think this could be a bit of an arms race, especially from the Mets side with Steve Cohen, who's an aggressive, rich owner. If one team pulls off some sort of deal, the other team will probably try to make something happen as well. We have a week until the deadline. This year it is now August 2nd, and it's 6 p.m. So next Tuesday we'll be waiting until 6 o'clock for the final trades. We'll see if Juan Soto's being moved, and we'll see if the Mets and the Braves make any sort of big-time move in the next week that could impact this race the final two months. Juan Soto, obviously the big move. We'll see if he's on his way out of Washington in the next week. But I go back to my original point that just in general, when it comes to baseball, I think guys in the sport, in the league, even fans, depending on what school of thought they hail from, are still looking at things the wrong way. Batting average, to me, still more important than homers, even today in 2022. Anyway, we come back. I do want to get back to the Kyler Murray thing because uh, I do uh, I can relate in a couple of different ways with Kyler in this whole situation, with the independent study. Plus, which quarterback would you want to start your uh, NFL franchise with? We'll get to that. We'll get to our Tuesday Top Ten as well. Still more to do here in the final hour. It's the Morrow Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. They keep things loose, they keep things alive. Who would you start your franchise with? It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow on ESPN Radio. And we'll circle back to the Kyler Murray independent study debacle we were talking earlier here on the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow on ESPN Radio. Uh, you know, earlier we were talking about Mike Sando put together his his uh, article, his list. It's it's done with the 
voting and ranking of 50 anonymous NFL coaches and executives. And you can go find it on The Athletic if you subscribe. But in Tier 1, he has Aaron Rodgers. He has Patrick Mahomes, Tom Brady, Josh Allen, Justin Herbert, and Joe Burrow in his Tier 1. And when I say his, again, I mean his article. It was really put together by those in the league. Who would you start your team with? It's an interesting conversation to be had. I think, much like the NBA, the NFL, of course, is in a very healthy spot with the amount of young quarterback talent they have. That we could debate this, and you could get a bunch of different answers on which quarterback you would most want to start your team with. That's a good thing. The NBA is similar. You know, like pick your favorite uh, guy under 26 years old. There's a lot to choose from. I'd probably go Luka Doncic personally, but we could have a good debate about a number of different guys that you would want on your team first in the NBA. And that's the best thing for a league. That's when the league is doing its best. You have a bunch of young talent that's spread throughout the league that's all you know on pretty level footing, and they'll be in the league driving that league forward for a number of years. So here are the guys on Get Up on ESPN having this debate. They all gave a different answer, which is a great thing for the league, but who would you want to start your NFL franchise with? We'll get to our opinions, but first the uh, cast and crew of Get Up breaking this down and making their selections. It would be very easy to say, listen, I'm going to take Patrick Mahomes instead. And I think that in many ways you're not, you're not wrong saying that. I don't think you're wrong saying it would be Josh Allen. Josh Allen's command at the line of scrimmage, I don't think gets enough credit. You know, the stuff he does pre-snap that we've lauded great quarterbacks for doing in the past. He's remarkable at that. He maybe has the best arm in football. And as a runner, I'm not really sure that there's another equal at the position as a runner. And so, you know, when you look at everything that he has done and, and quite honestly will continue to do, I'm not sure that it's easy to find somebody that's actually better than him. Yeah, I think Hasselbeck, excuse me, that's Hasselbeck. I think that Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes, Mike T, are, are the only reasonable answers here. Which one do you take? Hey, Justin Herbert. Justin I mean, Herbert what? has done more with less in his first two years. But below average offensive line, and he's only going to get better and better. Now that they have Rashawn Slater from Northwestern, yes. Zion Johnson, he is a superstar to me that has absolutely no ceiling. And while I like Josh Allen a lot, my only concern is he has been hit 751 times since 2018, and I'm not sure that's sustainable. Patrick Mahomes is there as well. I just like Herbert ceiling slightly more than Mahomes. What do you think of that? I thought I was a big Justin Herbert fan until I met Mike Tanner. Me too. I, I, I really think he's great, and I think he's going to be great. I don't uh, love anything like he loves I Justin think I, Herbert. Right, get, get you somebody that feels the way that Mike feels about Justin Herbert. Right. I, mean, I, I think that's that's good advice for all of our viewers. Uh, look, I, I am. He hasn't done it yet, right? I mean, like, well, we've seen the performance. We haven't seen the accomplishment. I, I would go with Patrick Mahomes. He's, he's still 26, right? And, and we've yeah. seen that he can win the Super Bowl. Uh, we've seen that he can perform at this level and, and deliver team success uh, as well. We haven't seen it with Justin Herbie. I'm not saying he won't. I'm not saying he can't. Haven't seen it. So I, I think, you know, th these are all good answers. My answer is Mahomes, and I think it's kind of easy. Van Graziano at the end saying it's kind of easy. But you got to. Josh Allen, you got Justin Herbert, you got a Patrick Mahomes. Maybe you would even take a Joe Burrow at this point. This did come up yesterday in the show. And Trent, you said Josh Allen, right? I did say Josh Allen, yeah. That's my that's my guy as of right now. I would still go with Patrick Mahomes. I don't think Mahomes has been passed by in this category. I think uh, if you asked the question maybe a year ago, most people or more people maybe would say Patrick Mahomes. And over the past year, I don't think I've seen enough that I would take somebody else over him right now, whether it's Josh Allen or Justin Herbert. 
Burrow, anybody else? Obviously, you have to account for age. If you're telling me just one game or one season, I'd probably still go Tom Brady. I would go Aaron Rodgers ahead of Patrick Mahomes. But if it's to start a franchise where this is going to be your franchise quarterback, I'm still going with Mahomes. Losing Tyreek Hill doesn't impact that for me. We're talking about the actual quarterback. I'm a big Justin Herbert fan. I think Herbert has a great skill set. I think, um, I think uh, like attractiveness can be, um, I don't know if distracting is the right term, but you see somebody like Herbert who really has that wow factor. Even a Kyler Murray getting that big contract, like, you know, you got a little bit of that wow factor with him as well. But for Herbert, while the ability's all there, like Joe Burrow to me doesn't have as much of the wow factor, but you know what? He just got his team to the Super Bowl and he plays on a lesser team than the Chargers, that to me is more impressive. For Herbert, I could not put him in the top tier, as I said last hour. I could not pick him over these other quarterbacks until he shows me that he can win some big-time games. He hasn't been in the playoffs yet. Josh Allen hasn't been to a Super Bowl yet. Mahomes has been victorious. I would start things off with Patrick Mahomes. Now, when you go back to the Sando article, One of the anonymous quotes was, take away Mahomes' first read. What does he do? He runs, he scrambles, he plays street ball. And I know there's concern that when you remove now Tyree Kill from the team this year, what does this mean for Patrick Mahomes? Maybe it could almost have a more positive impact on Mahomes and the Chiefs' offense. If you go back and you look through the time of the NFL, a lot of teams got better after they lost their star receiver because uh, it's the Patrick Ewing theory. You didn't feel like you were forced to feed them the football or, in the case of Ewing, the basketball, and you could – be more balanced, and actually run the offense. And for Mahomes last year, you may recall, when he struggled the most, it was because teams took away the downfield stuff and they made him try to slowly, methodically beat them, slowly moving down the field with uh, some more underneath stuff. And maybe, this is all just a theory, right, but when you have a Tyreek Hill, uh, you feel like you have to force him the football, you have to force things down the field. If you remove a Tyreek Hill, I wonder if it would force Patrick Mahomes to play more within the offense or what the defense is giving him, maybe not be as quite aggressive and have potentially an even sharper year this season for the Chiefs. But if I could start my franchise today with any quarterback, if we were having a draft and I had to get somebody for the next decade, I'm still rolling with Mahomes number one. Then there's the Kyler Murray situation with this whole independent study that we were talking about earlier, where, as released by Ian Rappaport yesterday, part of his contract outlines this independent study program where Kyler needs to study four hours of film a week uninterrupted. It's part of the contract, and if he doesn't do it, he will uh, be essentially avoiding the contract, right? He'd be going against a a condition of the contract and jeopardizing the guaranteed money he just signed for. I can tell you I've done independent studies before. When I was in high school, I did an independent study my senior year of high school. It was a joke. It was great. I loved it. I was working at the local TV station at the time. That was my independent study. I was already doing it anyways. I had nobody that checked on me, no teacher. Usually sometimes you get somebody assigned to your independent study, and you check in with them every once in a while, and you show the progress, and maybe you have to write a paper. It was nothing. I got to take one less class than everybody else did senior year of high school. I got to leave school earlier. I had to go there anyways. I was doing things. It was essentially like an internship that you were getting school credit for in high school. It was awesome. I loved it. In college, I also did an independent study. It was also great. It was the same idea. Senior year of college, I was already working for the uh, commercial radio station in town. I was able to turn that into an independent study. This one was a little bit different because I did have somebody checking in, but it was very infrequently. We were supposed to meet like once a month, and then he just kind of got lazy. It was my last semester of college. I think we met a total of like two times the whole semester. 
And at the end of the year, I had to write a paper, but it was like uh, 300 words, something social. It was like a one pager. It was so easy. And it's just an easy. In fact, I think they do pass or fail grades uh, for those classes. I did an independent study in high school and college. It was the easiest thing I ever did. Easy credits, just an excuse to not have to take another class. It was awesome. I don't know if Kyler Murray will enjoy this one as much. Uninterrupted, four hours of watching film, and maybe even having to be quizzed on it. And if you fail, right, what's on the line? $160 million guaranteed. For me, it was a little bit different. I mean, college courses are expensive. If I failed, I'd probably be a couple of credits short. Maybe it'd push off my graduation, but not quite the same as what Kyler Murray has on the line of making potentially $231 million in this contract. I referenced the quote earlier with Kyler where he said, I think I was blessed with skills to just go out there and just see it before it happens. I'm not one of those guys that that is going to sit there and kill myself watching film. I don't sit there for 24 hours and break down this team and that team and watch every game because in my head I see so much. I can also relate to this. It is the Moral Midday Show. I stopped studying in college because I realized my memory, it's the one thing I've been blessed with. I have a pretty good enough uh, memory. I don't need to study. And I got through college without studying. I don't know if I would suggest that to others. I was also a communications major. That helps. Not taking the hardest classes at all times. But I said, studying? What a waste of time. That is so, there's nothing more boring. I couldn't keep my attention on these textbooks. You go to the library, you go to a quiet room, you sit down, you try to study. No, thank you. Freshman year, I realized I don't need to study anymore. I remember this stuff. And I was able to get me through college. So I guess I have the same uh, arrogance or maybe just memory of a Kyler Murray where he says, I don't need to watch film. I can go out there and figure it out. It got me through college. I don't know if it could get Kyler Murray through the NFL, turning him into the great quarterback I assume he hopes to be. It's pretty important, that film study, to know your opponent before you go into a game, to be well prepared. So it led to Jamarcus Russell quickly falling out of the league, amongst other things. The opposite is what has contributed to Tom Brady becoming the greatest quarterback of all time. Where will Kyler Murray slot in? But it's like chores, right? If you grew up and your parents told you to do certain things around the house and then they gave you an allowance. I think at a certain point I may have had an allowance. I don't know. I don't remember. When, once I got old enough to have these memories, like, I, don't, I don't really remember. I'm sure I did. I don't know. But I always had to cut the lawn. I would cut my grandparents' lawn as well. I was always responsible for the dishes after dinner. Would have to vacuum. Nobody likes their chores. But if my allowance was about $231 million, maybe I would enjoy vacuuming a little bit more. Maybe I'd have no problem going out there to mow the lawn every week. For Kyler Murray, can you sit down and watch film for four hours a week uninterrupted to make sure you secure your $231 million? Trent, was there a certain chore you were responsible for around the house growing up? Well, you know, there there was four of us uh, in, in the household, so it was kind of evenly spread out. Uh, we it was chaotic in the Corville household. So any anywhere I saw fit, you know, taking out the trash, things mm-hmm. of that nature, I would do some yard work. Get the sticks out of the yard. We don't need sticks in the yard because pops is gonna mow. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? So I do a couple things like that. But the Corville household was always just uh, you know controlled chaos, if you will. So we kind of just did whatever. Uh, our parents asked, obviously. And, you know, you mentioned allowance. I, I'm saying with you, I don't remember, like, having an allowance, right? Like, that that just – I started working when I was 14, so that was my allowance. Yeah, right. You know, like, if once you get a job, that's, that's what you get. But I don't really remember having an allowance, quite honestly. Yeah, I don't. I started working – yeah, I think I was, like, 13, and it wasn't much of a hard job. I was, like, refing football and baseball. So, yeah, you know, an allowance wasn't necessary. 
But I tell you what, you put $231 million oh. on the line, I'll do whatever you need around the house. Oh, absolutely. I'll paint the house for you. <laughs> I'll build the house for $231 million. Tell you what, a chore that nobody likes to do is pressure washing. That that is that's a difficult one, especially if you got a long driveway, a circular driveway. Mm-hmm. That is that is no fun whatsoever. I never pressure washed at the home growing up. My father, I don't think, trusted us enough. He did most of the work outside. <laughs> Mowing the lawn was about the only thing. Every once in a while, we'd have to like uh, weed whack or do the hedges. But then I'm sure we did such a terrible job. My father's like, <laughs> I'm just gonna do it. Right? The house needs to look the yard needs to look better than this. So mowing the lawn was the only thing. But when I worked in minor league baseball. I had to uh, to do that on the stadium, and uh, yeah, that that wasn't very enjoyable. Could be therapeutic. That's that's how I thought of it as a kid. You know, we go out there, you do a square. You know what I'm saying? Put the uh-huh. headphones in, have a good yeah. time, listen to a podcast, whatever you're that's doing. Right. You know, just it's therapeutic. Yeah, you know that's what I felt. Mowing the lawn wasn't too bad for me. Yeah, same idea. Put on some music. It would take about 45 minutes an hour, but you're outside. You're getting some exercise. It's a nice day. I'll tell you the one thing, though, I'm allergic, you know, I have allergies, so every once in a while uh, mowing the lawn would really get my allergies going, and I'd have to take a break and go blow my nose. That was miserable. <laughs> but mowing the lawn, it, was, it wasn't bad. You go out there, get a nice little workout in. But, again, you pay me $231 million, whatever you want me to do for four hours a week, yeah, sure, you got it. Absolutely, for that money. You can always get to the show on Twitter, at Morrow Middays. T with a G. Did not like my take on Kyler Murray. He said that I have so much to say about Kyler Murray's film study and what the greats do while claiming I watch more NFL film than Kyler. And then goes in another direction about maybe I should listen to more sports talk to improve the Morrow Midday Show. Well, this tweet from T with a G doesn't say I was wrong about Kyler Murray. So I got that going for me. And as I responded, what shows should I listen to? What other sports talk shows should I listen to? If you were doing film, well, it wouldn't be film, but if you were doing prep, if you were trying to get to know the opponent, if you will, right? If you were doing a study, an independent study on sports talk radio, what shows does T with a G suggest? I'm still waiting for the response. I'm very curious to see. If you were talking all time, I mean, everybody does a show differently. I would actually say you shouldn't listen to other shows because you should just do your own thing. That would be my advice for those, you know, starting out or just getting in. Find your own voice. Do your own thing. Don't try to be somebody else. We all have our own inspirations that probably leak into our styles nonetheless. If we were doing a Mount Rushmore, though, which is a bit of a hokey radio bit, but if we were doing like the Mount Rushmore of radio, sports talk, I think you have to put Jim Rome on there. I mean, he was – he, Mike and the Mad Dog were the originators, so they would have to be on the list. But Jim Rome was the first that really like on a national stage uh, was uh, was big time. That has opened the door for a lot of others. I think Colin Coward's the best to do it right now. I think um, not only Mike and the Mad Dog, as I mentioned, but Mike and Mike in the morning, uh, Golick and Greeny for all those years, were very successful in the morning. Uh, and I don't know, maybe you throw like a Dan Patrick on there. But if you're talking like Mount Rushmore's or the all-time greats, but the thing is everybody does it differently, which is the great thing about the industry. Dan Patrick's a great interviewer. Colin Cowherd comes up with uh, unique opinions. Morning shows are always more conversational to get your day going. So uh, Mike and Mike in the morning were a little bit more like uh, softball sports talk. Not that there's anything, you know, that's that's just the role of the morning show. Mike and the Mad Dog were more yelling at listeners, New York style. Everyone's got their own style. Feinbaum's unique in his own way. So that's the great thing, I guess, about sports talk. By the way, T with a G, I'll be happy to get the T with a G with you anytime you want. I'm a green tea drinker. Trent, do you drink tea at all? 
You know, a green tea does have a lot of great health benefits. Oh, yeah, I so I, I do I enjoy a green tea every so often. And I don't, you know, I'm not a big sweeteners guy, right? If you're going to mm-hmm. get a drink, it's kind of like coffee for me. I drink coffee black. You know, I don't want to put any creamers mm. in it. But I feel like I do have to put, you know, a little sativa, uh, stativa or whatever it's called uh, in my green tea. But I enjoy green tea in the morning. Love a good green tea. I don't drink coffee. I'll drink green tea. I'll put some honey in there. Ooh. And I'll put a little bit. I, I've cut it out. But every once in a while, if I need a little pick-me-up, I'll put some sugar in there Okay. in the green tea, which kind of defeats some of those health benefits. <laughs> so I cut that out in recent uh, months or years. I don't really put the sugar anymore. But every once in a while, if I'm, if I'm a little sluggish, having my tea, and I know the green tea provides you a little energy just to begin with, but I'll boost it with some. Some extra sugar in there. I read an article that green tea, especially for men, like it, there's a lot of incredibly good health benefits that come with it if you just drink green tea without any, you know, extra things mm-hmm. in it. I, I'll send you that article. I I, I just read it a couple I days ago. I do enjoy it, but I like like the tea, like the warm green tea. I'm Ooh. not going to go into the the grocery store, or the gas station, and get like the Lipton bottled green tea. No, no, no. that stuff's disgusting. To right, me. it's got to be warm, and maybe with a little honey as well. Uh, so the tea with a G. We can grab green tea, whatever you want. And uh, talk about Kyler Murray's film study habits. Also on Twitter, uh, Naz Dream asked, have, have you or I, Trent, have we been watching Better Call Saul or Breaking Bad? Uh, I actually, I'll be honest with you, I, I haven't gotten into those shows. I know how great Breaking Bad is. I love Bob Odenkirk as well. I just have never gotten around to them. Maybe at some point. You ever watch Breaking Bad? I, I've seen a couple episodes. Didn't really dive into it the way I should have, and I've never seen an episode of Better Call Saul. Yeah. But, I mean, Mike Leach was saying that he's caught up on it, it's so true. I guess I have to, you, you know, uh, watch it a little bit. Yeah, if we get the okay from Leach, I mean, then, you know, you know it's good. <laughs> Got to add it to the list. Yeah, I've seen a couple of random episodes of Breaking Bad. I never watched Better Call Saul. But uh, I do love Bob Odenkirk. Right now I'm going through The Offer. Then I got to get to season two of Only Murders in the Building. I've been waiting for all the episodes to come out so I can just binge it. Love that show. I also got to get to Ted Lasso at some point. Yes, that you have to get yeah. to Ted Lasso and uh, Peaky Blinders. And, yeah, you know, Peaky it, Blinders is on that list as if well. If possible, if possible. Now I got Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. God, man, forget all that uh, NFL film I'm watching. I'm going to be <laughs> I'm, I gotta get through all these TV shows this this uh, fall and winter. 44 days, Luke, to NFL football. You got time. Can't you got wait. time. Yeah. I'll be busy these next 44 days. Hey, when we come back, we do a top 10 list uh, every week. And I'll be honest with you. I'm in between lists right now. I don't know. 10 biggest storylines for NFL training camps or the 10 biggest swing games for college football this year. Training camps begin today in the NFL. Maybe we'll talk about that next. It's the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Coming up, the biggest things to watch with NFL training camps getting underway. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow on ESPN Radio. We do a top ten list every Tuesday. You know, tomorrow will probably just turn it into an actual segment, talk about the potential swing games in college football this year because there are some fascinating non-conference games that could impact things early. But I did figure we do a top ten list every Tuesday. Training camps are off and rolling. Everybody across the NFL needs to be there by the end of today. Veterans, rookies for every team. So here we go. Training camps 
are uh, underway. Preseason football begins next week for the NFL. The actual season begins just over six weeks from now. It's right around the corner. So I figure the easy connection, why not? Let's do a top ten list this week of the ten things to look forward to or to look out for, the ten biggest storylines of NFL training camps. It's this week's Tuesday Top Ten. Time for the Tuesday Top Ten, where we rank anything from quarterbacks to cheeseburgers right here on the Morrow Midday Show. Interested? We're going to do the list a little bit different this week because I really have more than ten things, and some are bunched together, and some are apples compared to oranges. So let's go through ten storylines for NFL training camp with the training camps beginning. Number 10, I'm going to group them all together, but certain coaches that are either coming in to their jobs or could be on their way out. Most notably, like a Mike McCarthy is the big one on the hot seat to see how things go this year at the Cowboys. But I'm very curious to see new coaches. What does Doug Peterson mean for Trevor Lawrence? And we will get a quick look at the Jaguars next week. In fact, more on them in just a moment. What about Matt Eberflus, first-time head coach and a defensive head coach? What are things going to look like for Justin Fields? The Bears just went out and added another offensive lineman today and Riley Reeve to try to help out their young quarterback. What is that first training camp going to look like for Eberflus? Nathaniel Hackett and Russell Wilson when they have potential Super Bowl aspirations on the line. So on and so forth. The coaches coming into new places, running their first training camp with their new teams. How are things going to go these next couple of weeks? Number nine on my list of biggest NFL training camp storylines are two quarterbacks that I've been grouping together all offseason, and it's Tua and it's Jalen Hurts, and I think they're both in the same boat. Jalen Hurts may be a little bit in front of Tua because at least he made the playoffs a year ago, but both teams have talented rosters, young quarterbacks who are a bit unproven, and I think both playing for their jobs. Reports were that Jalen Hurts didn't look too good at the practices a few weeks back for the Eagles. He and Tua, even though it's just training camp and then we get to preseason and you don't you know learn too much, they both need to um, earn that respect, need to win over some of the new guys, Tyreek Hill, A.J. Brown, and need to play well enough to keep their jobs and get their teams where they want to go this year. Number eight on the biggest storylines of training camp, I'm going to say the Jaguars, just the team, because you have Doug Peterson getting back into coaching, Super Bowl coach, and you have Trevor Lawrence, who we've been talking about this afternoon, you know, needs to take a big step forward. And I think that's a good pairing. Plus, you get Travis Etienne coming back if you are a Clemson fan. They added a bunch of pieces in the offseason to that offense. The Jaguars, to me, just in general. Not to mention the fact that they play the first preseason game next Thursday. So we're going to get an early look on them a week from now. This is a big training camp for Jacksonville. And they have to get ready quick with their preseason beginning next week. We'll be watching them on national TV to see how they look. Doug Peterson, new coach. Trevor Lawrence needs to be much better this year. The Jags are number eight. Number seven of the most interesting storylines this training camp, I'm going to say Drake London. Look, again, I could group a bunch of guys together and tell you just the, the rookie class, but I'm specifically going to say I'm going to single out Drake London because, uh, number one, maybe because how close the Falcons are, but number two, he's expected to have a big impact this year. No Calvin Ridley. Kyle Pitts is your only other weapon. He's a tight end. When it comes to the wide receivers, it's all London and nobody else, and he's the youngest of the bunch in this rookie class. So I want to see right away what do we get out of him. As a Minnesota Vikings fan, I can tell you stories of guys you see in preseason, and even though it's only preseason, you know, like, yeah, they don't seem to have it. Troy Williamson was one. From the moment he stepped in the NFL, he was overwhelmed, and you knew, like, yep, yeah, you know what, this was not a first-round pick. Other guys, 
you know, impress Justin Jefferson, shows flashes. You think like, wow, we may have something special here. What are you going to get these next few weeks and into the preseason out of Drake London because he's going to have to have a big year if the Falcons want to do anything. Number six in the biggest storylines for training camp is Aaron Rodgers trying to get on the same page with all of his wide receivers. Or maybe which Nick Cage character Aaron Rodgers will dress up as next. We'll see. That'd be a good bit. Every day he should show up to training camp as a different Nicolas Cage character. But Aaron Rodgers, number six on the list, because you're talking about an MVP quarterback and a team that's trying to win a Super Bowl. And Devontae Adams is gone. He's got some other guys he's got to get to know. Rodgers, number six, you know a lot of attention is going to be paid to him these next few weeks. Then we get into the quarterback battles. I put these towards the first, uh, the, the top half of my list. Number five is Darnold against Baker. I assume the job is Baker's. The Panthers can play it up to be a quarterback competition. But if you were that sold on Darnold, you wouldn't try to get Deshaun. You wouldn't draft a quarterback. You wouldn't trade for Baker Mayfield. All offseason, they were trying to find ways to get away from Sam Darnold. I think the job is Baker's. But nonetheless, they're selling us on this idea of a competition. Let's see what happens. And quarterback competitions are usually the biggest stories of training camps. So Darnold and Baker, I put number five. Number four, I put Kenny Pickett and Mitch Trubisky for the Steelers. Pickett is our one hope of a rookie quarterback starting this season right away. What could he bring to the table? And then number three, I would say Trey Lance and Jimmy Garoppolo, if it really is a quarterback battle. I think the Niners have made up their minds that it will be Trey Lance. I personally think it's a mistake. But what are we going to see from Trey Lance here in training camp these next few weeks? Much like Jalen Hurts, you get reports that aren't too great out of the Niners camp about working on some mechanics and throwing motion and what are we going to get out of Trey Lance for a team that was just in the NFC Championship game? And I would also piggyback on this idea and this storyline with Debo Samuel as well, who was unhappy this offseason about a contract. Are there any issues leading up to the start of the regular season for Debo and the Niners? That's number three. Number two on my list, ah, Kyler Murray. How much film work is he going to be doing? Now I'm very fascinated by this. Four hours a week. By the way, when does it have to begin? All offseason? Training camp? Or just... Once they, they did say game weeks, right? So I guess we don't have to wait till the regular season. But with this awkward story coming out yesterday, I do put Kyler number two, that independent study. I've been there before doing independent studies, and they uh, usually in, acad in academia, they're pretty laughable. I think it'll be a little bit different for Kyler Murray this year with the Cardinals. But number one, the biggest story is still the training camp. It was the biggest story of the offseason. It was one of the biggest stories last season is Deshaun Watson. We're still waiting on the official verdict for Deshaun. And it's been, at this point now, a few weeks. It's been almost a month since the hearing wrapped up. Still no word. Training camp has begun. When is Deshaun going to be suspended? How long will it be for? Now, I don't feel too bad about the Browns being held, you know, in purgatory and all of this because they knew what they were getting into. They got into bed with Deshaun Watson. Here's the results. But with that said, number one, I don't know why this is dragging on so long for the NFL. And number two, the Browns probably knew what they were doing, what they were getting involved in when they went out and got Deshaun Watson. But they also probably assumed, like, hey, it's the NFL. They'll at least, you know, be, be uh, on their P's and Q's that the NFL will let us know. They'll give us enough of a head, heads up, enough of a head start, enough of a runway that whatever we have to deal with Deshaun, we'll be able to handle it this year. And so even though the Browns don't have much of a leg to stand on in this whole situation, I could still understand them being frustrated that it's like, all right, come on, training camp's beginning. Which quarterback needs to get the reps? We're almost into August. How long is he going to be out for? Uh, the, the hearing wrapped up over three weeks ago. Like, what are we waiting for? Can we get the official verdict? What's taking so long? But that's the big story, of course. 
Speculation now is that it won't be a full year. We originally thought maybe it'd be a full year. I think it probably should be a year for Deshaun. But to me, that's still the biggest storyline, especially now with training camp's beginning. The Browns are out there practicing. Deshaun's going to be practicing with them. And if you're Kevin Stefanski, you're wondering, like, all right, how much work do I need to give to the other quarterbacks? Because come week one, it probably won't be Deshaun under center. Is Deshaun going to be here? If, he, if Deshaun's suspended for the whole year, right, you, you, he doesn't need to take any reps. Wait till next year. Make sure Jacoby Brissett's good to go. So it screws up, uh, you know, your whole plan. If you're the Browns, you're still waiting on the outcome. So are we as football fans. And here we are going another week, waiting to see if the NFL is going to make some sort of announcement. Preseason football is nine days away. Regular season football, 44 days. The NFL is right around the corner. It's exciting. Training camps are off and rolling. And those are really more than 10. But those are the biggest storylines and things to watch here these next couple of weeks heading into the season. We'll wrap up your Tuesday when we come back. It's the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Spin lunch with Luke. Yo, what up? What's the word, big fella? Everything's good on this end. Hey, Luke, how's it going? Thanks for having me on the show. Hey, Luke. Hey, man. Pleasure to be on your show. I'm doing great, but I'm hoping you could call me Boca Baby. Great show. You did a good job. Hey, you're turning into rapidly my favorite person I've interviewed with, and I've done like 50 of these in the last week. You've done your homework. I like it. I absolutely like it. I love that. Another great thought. You've done your homework, haven't you? Good job. You've always getting big stars and important people on. That's, that's great to hear. We like to hear the interviews. You know, it's uncanny how you do this, Luke. And I don't know how you do Because, you know, I do this gauntlet of radio on Thursdays where I do all these different cities. Many of them need their hosts to have me give them some talking points. You hit all my talking points every week. <laughs> it's, it's uncanny how good you are. Always great talking football with you, Luke. Appreciate you guys being right. Very impressive. just want to say I find you the low country Colin Coward. You use common sense with statistics, and you combine them, and you think outside the box. Shout out to all the people itself that support the show. Tell your friends. Tell your friends. You inspire us to listen more to your show every single day. Da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da. Go ahead, boy. That's why you bring it on. Is this a sports show or a dancing show? I, I don't know. Sometimes I don't know what we're doing around here. Lunch with Luke for three hours, then you playing go. On the Morrow Midday Show. I'm on my way. I'm taking my time, but I don't know where. Goodbye to Rose and the Queen of Corona. See me and Julio down by the schoolyard. Wrapping up your Tuesday on the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow on ESPN Radio. If you ever miss anything from the show, find it podcasted by searching ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to said podcast. And you can always take the Morrow Midday Show with you wherever you go. Stream us online at charlestonsportsradio.com or through TuneIn Radio, your smart speaker. Or our free app. Search ESPN Charleston in the App Store, and through the app, you can listen to the show live or on demand from anywhere in the world. Appreciate listeners checking in from at least 11 different states and multiple countries on this Tuesday. You can always text the show, 843-608-1734. Somebody was asking earlier about the Braves and the trade deadline. Who are some guys that they could try to go after? There's all sorts of names. I think there could be a lot of sellers. You know, if you're looking for an outfielder like the Braves may be, Andrew Benatendi is one that is thrown around often. Relievers, you have Daniel Bard um, and uh, David Bednar for the Pirates and the Rockies that both 
should be available and would be uh, Bard would be a rental. I think Bednar has more on his contract beyond this year. And I'll tell you what, if you were interested in starting pitching, I think there's more pitching depth. I think that's the position of strength this deadline, starting pitching. Maybe Nathan Ovaldi's on the move, Luis Castillo for the Reds, Frankie Montas of the A's is a big name. I think there's quite a few pitchers that can make a big difference, starting pitchers, that could potentially be moved over the next week. The trade deadline in Major League Baseball is a week from today. If you ever miss anything with the show, find the podcast. In the meantime, life is a series of hellos and goodbyes. For now, we say goodbye. We'll say hello again tomorrow at noon. It's the Bar Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio.